This is the Master of Cinema cast. My name's Tom Jennings, and unfortunately, Joachim won't be joining us today. He has got some work commitments and some college commitments, but I am joined um, by David Blakesley from the Eclipse Viewer and the Criterion cast. David, thank you very much for coming on board with me tonight. My pleasure, Tom. Really looking forward to our conversation, and it's good to be back on Masters of Cinema cast. Yeah, I'm being all part of the uh, Hyperbolic podcast family now as well. I think it's uh, only right that we should do more kind of crossover shows. And David, you picked today's choices, um, which were Le Beau Serge and Le Cousins by Claude Chabot. And um, really, I want to kind of thank you for picking those, actually, because they're films that I've been wanting to talk about for quite a long time. And I was just wondering, what, what, what was your kind of reasoning behind those choices? Well, I have a couple of reasons. You know, as, as listeners may or may not know, I've been working on this blog project called Criterion Reflections since uh, January of 2009, where I've been going through the whole Criterion collection in chronological order in when, when the original films were released, not so much the DVDs or Blu-rays. And, uh, and because uh, I am at a certain point in the timeline, I happen to be right at the end of 1965, taking a little bit of a break from the project for the last couple months. But uh, I never went back to review films that were uh, released after I'd passed that point in the timeline, if that makes sense. In other words, you know, I'm here, Criterion puts out some films that are older, but, and so I was already well past 1958 and 59 in my, in my sequence when Le Beau Serge and Le Cazon uh, were released. And I thought, well, you know, those are films that I really wish had been out when I was covering that kind of early uh, outbreak of, of the French New Wave. Uh, at the time, and so I did cover things like the 400 Blows and Hiroshima Mon Amour and Breathless and all of that, but Chabral was kind of this blind spot for me, and yeah, I, I will at least guess for a significant number of listeners, um, and so I really come to this as a real novice to Claude Chabral, but I really did, uh, I did watch the films prior to suggesting it, you know, I kind of initiated my own uh, guest appearance, I guess you could say, and said, hey, I, it's been a while since I've been a Masters of Cinema cast, and especially after like you said, Tom, uh, you guys joined the Hyperbolic TV network, and uh, you know we're kind of on the same feed now. And I definitely look forward to more collaborations like this, including maybe having you guys on with the Eclipse Viewer, where we talk about the Eclipse series. But in any case, to kind of get to the point, um, this was just basically a way of filling in a little bit of a gap in my own understanding. And since I had watched the films and, and enjoyed them, I thought it would be great to have a conversation where I could really dig in, uh, study up a little bit, and then get them you know, get the point of view of, of, uh, of the co-hosts here, uh, Masters of Cinema cast, since I know that Masters of Cinema also released these two titles. And they are different editions. It's not like Criterion and Masters of Cinema did the same exact thing with these releases. Maybe we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. But yeah, definitely. The films themselves are are very satisfying and, and very interesting and definitely round out my picture of the early days of the Nouvelle Vague. Yeah, I think it might be wise just, talk, just kind of backing up a little bit and talking about the French New Wave, um, kind of a bit of an overview, really, because since I've been kind of, I think it was at like the mid nineties where I really kind of realised that my kind of interest in film wasn't just kind of I liked films. I kind of knew that I wanted to make them and I wanted to find out more about them. And I've always been a big fan of film movements throughout the history of cinema. And the first one I kind of came across was. Um, you know, the Dogma 95 movement with kind of Lars von Trier and, and, and all those type of people. And I like, and I kind of got me thinking about kind of the various movements that have become and gone. And I like them because they kind of tend to come, come along and shake cinema up a little bit. And the French New Wave certainly did this in many, many ways. I mean, what, is it one of your, I mean, as kind of like, as 
movements go? Are they something you're kind of like interested in and do you kind of like have a particular favorite one? Oh, well, yeah, I definitely enjoy um, the French New Wave. Um, I, you know, I, I, I have just really enjoyed the whole process of discovering films through the Criterion Collection. I'm, I'm pretty admittedly um, very Criterion-centric, I guess is one way of putting it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I haven't really ever seen any other Claude Chabral films because, for, you know, to put it very plainly, these are the first two Chabral films that Criterion has released. I know there are other good ones out there, and I may, you know, I, I do occasionally watch non-Criterion movies. I don't want to be, uh, you know, overblown in that. But when I sit down to really study film, and because I have this project going, if you will, with my blog, and also the reviews I do for Criterion Cast and the Eclipse Viewer, that's really my ongoing adult education, I guess you could say. And so, uh, you know, the, the new wave, the French new wave, has been really uh, a fascinating uh, you know, source of, of discovery for me. But really, I like the new waves of all these different countries, the Japanese new wave, the Czech new wave, uh, the uh, you know, kitchen sink films that came out of England right around the same time. And just, you know, all these, all these movements, I guess, that sort of cut against the conventional grain of films as, you know, sheer entertainment, you know, just diversions mm-hmm. for the masses. I mean, when artists sort of take it upon themselves to use film as an expression of, uh, you know, kind of what drives them or even a, a voice of dissent, or uh, kind of upset, you know, kind of turning uh, the conventional wisdom on its ear. Uh, to me, you know, that's that's very uh, satisfying to, to sort of try to get in touch with those those movements. Uh, you know, my own life was was very influenced by the 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 new wave musically of the late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties, and you know, I uh, kind of got into the punk rock scene. I've kind of dis, you know discussed some of that in other programs. I won't go into a lot of detail here, but you know. That's where I first heard the term "new wave" was in relation to bands like the Ramones and the Talking Heads, and you know, then there was the punk rock side with the Sex Pistols and the Clash and all those English bands, uh, and and so yeah, this idea of a new wave of kind of shaking things up and and taking an art form in a new direction—that's kind of where I first experienced it. And when I discovered that that's kind of a term that was carried over into music from cinema, it's like, oh, let me let me discover these other. Uh, you know, agitators, because uh, a lot of times they're they're led by the young people. Uh, they they kind of uh, you know provoke a lot of controversy. Uh, they you know sometimes they run into censorship pressures from governments. And it's like, well, there must be some reason that they generate such strong reaction. You know, what's what's the uh, you know the old way of thinking that they were challenging, and what did that open the opportunity for people to express and experience after that? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing I've always kind of liked about the French New Wave as well was the fact that it was born out of a form of film criticism. I mean, these were kind of young people that came together in film clubs and wrote, obviously, for Cashes de Cinema, the kind of Andre Bazin kind of edited film periodical. And it's always fascinated me that you had kind of directors who were also such outspoken film critics because these guys really did kind of, um, kind of stir things up a little bit in how we kind of think about film and how we critically analyze it as well. And it's, it's always quite strange to, to have filmmakers who are also film critics, because we don't really have that now, do we? I, I, I don't recall any kind of like prolific filmmakers now who are really like outspoken. No, no, nothing, nothing at all. I mean, the criticism industry has kind of developed into its own thing. Probably the closest I know of it is, is even people such as yourself, you know, who, who are making movies maybe on a small scale. Um, but yeah, I don't think of any movie critics per se that have made made that 
that leap and, and maybe because you, you know, if you want to be a filmmaker you, you kind of got to get into that the industry side of it and and make your connections from there i think you know the, the french new wave in particular was was kind of unique because it was at a time where you could you know make a movie on a fairly small budget but but uh, because of the parisian cultural scene you know you could get your movie up on a screen and uh and it would have a lot of impact. You know, people read the critics. They discussed the critics. They, and what the critics uh, said about films, you know, made a big impact. You know, Cahiers du Cinema, the, the, the magazine itself, never had a massive circulation. But its opinions influenced the perceptions of many and steered people towards movies that were challenging and important and and quite fascinating. You know, nowadays our cinema scene is, is much more fragmented, like all the media and culture scenes are. You know, you could make a movie and, and reach a, 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 a global audience. It's, it's a little bit more of an uphill struggle these days to, to be heard uh, just because you're making something that's a little bit unconventional or outside the mainstream. Yeah, I and mean, it's interesting because, I mean, I, I was thinking about this the other day when I remember, I think it was the third Transformers film that came out, and I saw interviews with Steven Spielberg and James Cameron in which they were saying that how good a film this was and how Michael Bay was the perfect person to make this type of film. And I sat there thinking, God, can they really think that? Can the man that made Schindler's List really honestly believe that statement he's making? And it sort of like got me thinking about how... I think it's more about selling these days. Oh, yeah. Advertising. And it just doesn't seem... I, I think... And I hate to quote him. In fact, I hate to invoke him, sorry. But I sometimes think Armand White, as much as I don't agree with most of what he says, sometimes he does say a few things which I think are kind of deserve a little bit more attention, which was that uh, you know, there's, there's no voices really in film criticism anymore. Uh, I think he'd like to think he is one for, for various reasons. But it just seems that everything's a bit kind of placid at the moment. And you don't kind of have these sort of, really kind of people going to town or not even going to town, but kind of like really kind of shaking things up and making you think about things differently. And I mean, I was reading some articles from Cashier's Cinema as well early and like, you know, in like 1953, they were kind of debating things like, you know, was CinemaScope going to be good for cinema? Was it going to save film? And you know, we kind of have those kind of debates now in relation to 3D. And it, just reading these articles, there was such a breath of fresh, breath of fresh air about them almost, even though know, they're like 60 odd years old. They still seem to be talking about really kind of pertinent issues that we kind of have today, and it's just yeah, it's just a shame. I, I mean, I'm you know, I, do you buy any kind of film magazines or anything like that? No, I'm, I'm mostly just read stuff online. I mean, sometimes I'm at a bookstore and I might you know flip through Film Comment or or uh, what's the other one here? I can't even remember the name, but I'll just kind of look at what's on the magazine rack. But I'm not a real regular reader. I mean, I'm really just into my own little kind of blogging scene, yeah. and I read other people's links and reviews that they post and i talk about it with these with these podcasts you know, obviously i do a little bit of studying up when i'm about to talk about film so i'll read what you know both the the critics uh, re- say and also just regular everyday folks like me on imdb or you know bloggers who have you know have, have taken a little bit of time to cover these just to kind of get a consensus but uh, you know I, there was a seriousness about the 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 Calle du cinema crowd you know where where godard and chevral are debating the ethics of the the tracking shot versus the zoom <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and it's just like this this deep uh, meditation that they would have on pretty basic filmmaking techniques but they would they would recognize these these huge implications of of how the story is told and that that's really 
what they were focusing on not not so much the message uh, or the emotion but but just the 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 framing and and the uh you know the the sequencing of the narrative and just you know what the camera itself is doing and so uh yeah these these early french new wave films was really kind of a uh a way for these writers to kind of walk the talk and they'd spent a lot of time you know giving deep analysis to you know Hollywood pot boilers and detective movies and westerns and you know melodramas and 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 with a seriousness that I think probably surprised a lot of people you know it's like well you just go to the movies you have a night out and you mm-hmm. think oh that that's a pretty that's a pretty good film I'll I'll recommend it to my friends but they they took it to a, a different level and I think they they perceived the artistry and the uh, and the genius that it took to to make movies that really stood out and captured the imagination and these guys watched tons and tons and tons of movies i mean they, they really did watch everything and it's like there's this kind of obsession or this almost this monomania that seemed to be driving some of them and uh you know and so is that the life i'm living well not exactly i do have a, a day job and other things but I, I do appreciate their passion and their work and it's definitely uh not only opened my eyes to a lot of things when i watch a movie that I might have otherwise missed without kind of their their guidance, but also they created some terrific innovations in an art form that I I love and care a lot about. So, uh, yeah, long live the new wave. Yeah, I mean, I think the slight kind of ironies. I mean, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I mean, it was kind of originally the whole kind of scene was kind of kickstarted by sort of like the French Film Fund, like really kind of like the government really were the ones who came in and made funding available for people to make short films and then kind of gave them advances on receipts that you know, kind of allowed many directors to make their first film. And it always kind of strikes me as it, I always think it's been this kind of like massively anti-authoritarian kind of independent scene. And when I was kind of researching this episode, I found out it was kind of like nudged in the right direction by the powers that be. But I, I, I think that the influence of the French New Wave, especially on kind of um, American cinema in the 60s as well, and perhaps it's something we'll, we'll talk about in a little bit more, but it, it's, it kind of filtered through. I think the effects that we still feel today, you know, filmmakers who I admire from the 60s, 70s, you know, American filmmakers were all in part influenced by this movement. And I think it's something that's kind of, it stood the test of time, definitely. And I think going back to some of these films as it has been over the past few days, I realize how refreshing these films are. Oh, yeah. In a way. And I mean, I... I was watching um, Captain, the new Captain America film again the other day, and it's a film I really enjoyed f- for a few reasons, but I was watching it thinking, God, this film's such a product, even though it does have some kind of a bit more individuality mm. than the other Marvel films. But I was just so aware that every scene I was watching was so carefully composed, and I, I can't imagine there being a day where the directors or the actors said, right, let's do something different, because they can't, because of the way the nature of the way these films are being made. You know, it's all been kind of pre-rendered. You know, everyone's got to hit their cues for the special effects and things like that. And there's a kind of a, I don't know, a, a sense when I'm watching them that it's, it's something that's been so pre-planned and packaged and sold that it seems to lack a kind of urgency in a way. I mean, don't get me wrong, I did enjoy the film, and I think kind of, it's something I feel a lot when I go and watch a lot of films at the moment, which is I kind of sit there and within the first 10 minutes, I'm like, I can pretty much guarantee I know where this is going. Yeah. And going back to these films, I was kind of like, many of which I hadn't seen or haven't seen for a long time. I was like, I'm completely, I don't know where this is going. I don't really know what's going to happen next. And it's quite refreshing having that feeling again. Yeah. There's no formula that drives these new wave films. They are. And sometimes it's because they're, 
like with a Godard film in particular, it's being made up as it goes. I mean, he's writing the yeah. script for this afternoon shoot this morning, you know, and so and and he's interacting with how the story is shaping up and developing, but it also. The, this element of surprise and of of redirecting the story in a in a in a an unorthodox way was was very much a part of what they were doing. They were experimenting with form, and of course, you know, Godard went off into some very political areas, which I think was kind of interesting to your earlier point about kind of biting the government hand that feeds you, you know. And then here he is, yeah. uh, really up among the forefront of the revolutionaries in 1968. But, you know, and then with somebody like Claude Chabral, who we're going to be talking about, you know, in this episode, you know, he he took a different approach and he became more of a director for hire to the point where his uh, new wave credentials came into some serious uh, debate uh, he was you know nobody could dispute he was part of that cahier du cinema crowd but uh you know he pretty much started turning out thrillers and and was just basically taking whatever jobs he could get rather than being uh you know much more idiosyncratic like a godard or maybe less uh you know less winsome in his uh kind of emotional approach to filmmaking like a truffaut you know so uh you know chabral's i think his his reputation kind of got sullied a little bit and it wasn't until really almost to the end of his career when the retrospectives started rolling in that people said, oh, yeah, this guy really you know, deserves to be celebrated and honored because he, he blazed a very distinctive path himself. And, you know, like I say, these, these are the two films that really got that whole train started. It does seem quite a bitchy little kind of um, circle of friends. The French New Wave. I think. When, oh yeah. I think, oh yeah. Yeah. Won't be to the to the the person who fell on the, uh, into disfavor. You know? Yeah. They, they, uh, they, they seem like they, they seem like the worst fremenies on earth. You know. I think the knife oh, yeah, going well, back. You know. A film I just wrote about on Criterion Cast, uh, Serge Bourguignon's uh, Sundays on Cybele, really kind of illustrates the wrath of the new wave crowd. He, he, you know, Serge Bourguignon uh, was a very promising filmmaker. He'd won a, a short subject Palme d'Or at Cannes in 1960, I believe, and then his first film, Sundays on Cybele, which is a gorgeous film. Uh, was chosen by the French film industry to be their representative to the Academy Awards, uh, and and it actually bumped out uh, Jules and Jim and uh, Vive Savi, you know, two two you know really landmark new wave films from 1962. And so Sundays and Savelle not only got the nod from France over two of the in-house darlings of the new wave, but it actually won the Oscar. It, it took home the statue. And that seems to be an unforgivable sin yeah, yeah. that Bourguignon was never able to live down because uh, he was really sidelined and, and uh, really only made a few more films in the, throughout the course of the 60s and then kind of had other had to find other lines of work. I was watching a documentary about it earlier and apparently they, were, um, they used to try and impress each other with who they could scythe down in their kind yeah. of critiques and uh, it it seems a bit callous and mean i think a lot of it it's um yeah i think oh, yeah. there's that side of film criticism always i'll never forgive pauline kale for uh, destroying david lean when he had to go and apparently answer for ryan's daughter and he was so traumatized by it, he didn't make another film for like 14 years and i think sometimes there's a line which i think sometimes gets overstepped quite um horrifically but i suppose it's kind of a good way of segueing into the first from and there's no way we can talk about both these films i think without a little bit of crossover because i think oh they, yeah they, 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 they really they certainly complement each other i think to a fair degree yeah so yeah. i mean we'll, we'll, we'll start at the beginning with, um which was in 1958 with Serge, and this was i mean very roughly i suppose you could describe this film as 
it's you know, a character called Francois who returns to a village after he's kind of not been there for quite a while to get over a. Um, is, is it TB? I think he's been. Suffering. I think so. they never say what the illness, but some kind of a breathing issue, which is ironic because yeah. the guy smokes the whole time. Yeah. Well, he's French. He's French, <laughs> he's and he lives French, in the fifties, exactly. and he, that, that's that's right. kind of what they live for. But he kind of comes back to this small village where I'm assuming that he grew up in, um, and he reconnects with his friend Serge, who is married to the heavily pregnant Yvonne, and. Serge has a number of problems, one of them being the fact that he has a chronic alcohol problem brought on the death of his child. And it's it, it's one of these films where, when it began, I instantly was reminded of another film I'd seen quite recently by Jacques Tati, which is your um, Jour de Fête, which I, I don't know if you... Have you got picked up the Criterion? Uh, no, film? it actually hasn't been officially released. I think there's a lot of, you know, review oh, really? copies in circulation, but it's it's coming very soon. I think maybe next week, actually. The, yeah, the 28th, it'll be out. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of ready for the next big discount sale, and then I'll pounce on it. But yeah, I haven't I mean, seen Jour de Fête yet, no. Right, well, I mean, I love Jack Tassi films, and I picked up the Studio Canal box set that was released here a couple of months ago, and I was watching Jour de Fête, and it's a rather kind of twee story about this postman who lives in this small tiny french village and basically he's fighting against modernity coming to the village and kind of revolutionizing the postal system and the kind of the moral of this story is is that everything's just fine leaving this french village in its like twee little world and when i began to watch this film it almost felt like this was the same village a few years later and it had stayed in its twee state and things had gone extremely badly because I don't think I've ever watched a film in which I've kind of felt so oppressed by the location, which I know is kind of the point. But I kind of want to talk about this village a little bit because it's a really kind of tragic place to be, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's very it's very dead end. I mean, uh, it's it's shot in black and white. So, you know, the the, the images of, of the village definitely have sort of this dated, rustic feel to them. Uh, but it could have definitely been shot and romanticized in a way of like, ah, life in rural France, you know, uh, fresh delivered milk each morning and, you know, the rustle of leaves beneath your feet. But but that's uh, not at all Chabral's take. And, and I guess it's probably, you know, worth pointing out that this is a, a town that he actually did spend a fair amount of his life in. Uh, when he was a child during the World War II years, he was sent there by his parents to kind of escape some of the tumult of of Paris and just to kind of be safe. Uh, but I think that his family also had some historic roots to the area. So it was a bit of a summer home and kind of, uh, his father was a prominent, uh, pharmacist. And so he knew this town intimately. And, uh, that's one of the things that kind of makes this one a unique entry among the early new wave films is that it's set out in the sticks rather than in Paris. And so it definitely has a very different atmosphere than what you typically think of for a French new wave movie. Yeah, and the thing, I mean, I was quite kind of interested in this one was having kind of being, I'm at the moment kind of um, reading some books about the Second World War and things like that. And there was always this kind of like, um, rather kind of like oxymoronic kind of take on things of the war where the kind of the biggest losers of the war were France and England, bearing mm. in mind that both countries were virtually kind of bankrupted and their kind of st- status as world superpowers had, had completely evaporated. They were kind of basically kind of kicking around with empires. I mean, during the right. making of this film, you had kind of like France was losing into China, Algeria was rebelling, and I think that's even mentioned in the film a little bit. Yep. And there's this sense that these films where, sorry, the sense in, in, in this location whereby it's like, really, these should be the victors, you know, kind of lording it up in this kind of way. And 
they're living this existence which is completely pitiful when you think for kind of like a yeah. modern country and i mean you know, both britain and france you know were re- really on their knees financially and it's really reflected in this location because you say this isn't a picture postcard view of french rural life it's this kind of oppressive nightmare that has trapped the characters in and i think it's a very kind of if were this perhaps a kind of a different film or kind of a hollywood film this would be the kind of place where you know there'd be the, the town drunk who kind of starts drinking at 11 but ho 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 isn't he funny yeah right charming right there's there's none of that small town charm in this film these are these are people kind of stuck in a you know, it's it's not poverty where uh, they have a lack of food or a lack of basic sustenance, but there's just no purpose. There's no drive. There's no real reason to, you know, invest and and exert oneself uh, in, to to pursue a life of, with some purpose. They're just kind of existing. It's very inbred. Uh, you know, uh, just the the attitudes uh, and the roles that people have to play are very limited you know there's you know you, you could be a common laborer um you can be you know kind of well not the town drunk but one of many yeah. <laughs> town drunks of, of all ages and generations or in the roles of the women you could be the pregnant housewife or you could be the the, the town you know floozy uh, the loose girl who's you know very carnal uh and probably on her way to becoming a pregnant wife you know, somewhere in the next uh, year or so, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. And, and so Francois comes in from presumably Paris or some other big city where he's gone off for his education and he's here to recover from this, this illness for the winter. I mean, really, it seems almost more just like a, a plot device. This, he's never yeah. really, he's never really sick after that, you know, he's just there and it's just an excuse to bring the city boy into this country setting to provide this, I, I would say a point of view that, uh, the Parisian audiences that Chabral was aiming for and the metropolitan audiences throughout Europe, uh, they would identify with, with the Francois character and look at all these, you know, rubes out in the countryside and, and the wretched lives they're leading. So it's interesting. Chabral seems to have taken advantage somewhat of his familiarity with the area and even his relationships and good standing with, with people. I mean, he was he was the homeboy who made good, you know, and came back and made a movie about him. I'm sure it was quite the life of the town to have this even a small, you know, film crew, you know, filming all the buildings and the, the households and recruiting local actors in kind of this neo-realist style of just common everyday folks with a few, you know, few folks from the big city who've been in movies before. And so, you know, whether people thought they were going to get rich off this or famous, who knows, but it was certainly... A, a break from the routine for the the actual inhabitants of this little village, Sardin. Yeah, and I mean the, the thing about I mean, Francois as well is that he has this kind of air of cosmopolitan. You know, he, he's the kind of the young cosmopolitan young man who you, you think when he comes into this film, he's going to be the one kind of dishing out the really kind of worldly advice and getting this yeah. place back on track, as it were. And what I kind of liked about it was is that he is always the outsider in yeah. this film. In, in what he wears, in what he says, and his kind of demeanor, and it's almost as if he kind of looks down on them, and he's like these poor wretches, you know, and he, almost like he has this kind of Christ complex of, you know, what am I going to do to kind of help these poor folks? And what I kind of like about the film is the dynamic of it as it goes on, because you realise as the film goes on, Francois isn't that character at all. No, he's broken down and humbled in this whole thing. I mean, he's, you know, he 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 may come in with this idea of of enlightening these poor boobs you know that that are you know need to get off the farm a little bit but 
they actually put him in his place and and so it's it's not like the city triumphs over the country uh but at the same time the country you can't really say the country triumphs <laughs> they just kind of continue on in their squalor and misery uh, and uh, kind of oblivious to whatever you know the city slicker might have to say about the way they live and it's interesting the fact that kind of sir the relationship between him and Serge, because as you watch it you can you can tell that in another life they could have swapped positions quite easily. The fact that, you know, I mean, it could have been yeah. Serge that got away or Francois that stayed. And it's kind of, it's kind of mirror imaging of each other. And the dynamic between those two, I found their kind of friendship kind of, I, I found it quite realistic in the way that they kind of like, you know, they, they've obviously been friends for so long. They could kind of see through each other's differences quite a lot. And it was one of the things I really enjoyed about the film because really, I mean, when we see Serge, I mean, he's not the most likable. Of, in fact, neither of them are really the most likable of characters. Oh, Sir, Serge is, is a, a kind of a beast. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, the 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 story behind his alcoholism is that you know he he married a girl that he may or may not have gotten pregnant, but uh, they had been sleeping together, and she wound up pregnant, and it's kind of like, well, that's the customary thing to do. And uh, but then this child that they had conceived was pretty much stillborn. Uh, down syndrome uh we'd call it nowadays mongoloid is the word that they use in the in the movie um but beyond that he is also a man of frustrated ambitions he had studied to be an architect had gone off to school had kind of you know fizzled out somehow or another his prospects never uh, you know, resulted in anything uh productive and so he basically had to come back home with his tail tucked between his legs so those are the ostensible reasons as to why he you know wakes up uh, with a bottle of wine and drains a few of them throughout each day and is just pretty much a, a, a brute and and uh, you know a misogynist very very cruel to his once again pregnant wife uh, you know he's fearful that they're going to have another uh, baby with birth defects and uh, he doesn't necessarily really love her they're just stuck with each other and uh, yeah that's 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 Serge you know Le Beau Serge the handsome Serge the charming wonderful Serge uh kind of a jerk really yeah i mean it's an ironic title isn't it really let's be honest <laughs> yeah. i mean it's kind of thing but i mean it's like little things that he does like um i mean one of the things that really got me was when he's, he's talking about the baby and he kind of like pushes back his eyes oh yeah yeah and it's like god you know you sat there thinking i mean i i can take not liking characters in films right and to, you, you can like the worst people in the world basically when it comes to film and right. i watched it and you just sort of sat there thinking this guy is just an absolute like you say he's an absolute brute and i mean he obviously yeah. knocks her around, and there's oh, yeah. a, and, you know her, he, he goes out on the on constantly getting drunk with her dad. I mean, there's that brilliant scene when they kind of like the respective children take the kind of the adults away and kind of yeah. tuck them up at night. And I think you know, it's even referenced that he goes to sleep in the hen house sometimes and things like that. And I mean, I know kind of you know they were big on kind of yeah you know, mise en scène, but if you look at kind of their Yvonne and Serge's house, it, if it wasn't for the fact that if someone told you it was set two hundred years ago. You wouldn't be that surprised, you know. It's this kind of tiny one-room hellhole with kind of yeah. <laughs> walls, that just kind of thing. And you just look at this guy, and you're thinking, you've got a pregnant wife, and all you want to do is just sit around getting drunk all day. It's, it's quite a frustrating film, I found. Oh yeah, yeah, and and that's the thing. It's like, okay, you're frustrated. Life hasn't gone the way you wanted it to. I mean, suck it up and deal, dude. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, and that's that's the thing. I, I I could not really look to him, obviously, with a whole lot of pity i mean he's 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 mocking his own dead child i mean come on that's that's pretty pretty freaking low um but again francois comes in and 
if he does have, a, you know, I think he's even by a scene at the end of the movie, he's, he is said to have a Christ complex and he does get involved in this dialogue with the priest where he's trying to see if he can somehow come in and make a difference. And, and he does it to the point where he becomes offensive to the very people he's trying to help. And, uh, you know, I've been a do-gooder of sorts. I mean, I'm in social work. Anyways, that's my profession is to get with people whose lives are at varying levels of crisis. And I, I have learned lessons over the years that sometimes all you need to do is be present and just listen and validate what you can and, and, uh, you know, just build something, but don't come in, you know, as the, as the Messiah, who's got the answer to all their problems. But even while he's doing this on this mission of, you know, trying to, uh, bring some light into this dark situation, he's also, yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty uh, blatant womanizer. You know, he sees this young uh, girl, Marie, uh, the, the Yvonne's younger sister. Uh, she's, like I said, she's kind of like the local tramp. Uh, she's very easy to to get with in, in bed, uh, very, very promiscuous. And he wastes no time in taking advantage of that opportunity. So if he does have a Christ complex, it's not a very uh, puritanical one. You know, he's very, very willing to take uh, advantage of those opportunities and. And again, not with anything approaching uh, love or romance or commitment. It's like, oh, she's available. Let's go, you know? Yeah, and that's it. I mean, I think it's a very kind of new way of thinking is to have such flawed people and not even try and pretend that they're anything other than what they are. And it's like you say, I mean, kind of like Marie, I mean, she's like, I, I'm not quite sure how I feel about the treatment of women in both these films. Oh, no, they're, 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 it's terrible. I mean, they're, they're, as characters, they're, they're not given a very full treatment i think it's pretty fair to say yeah, yeah and i'm not and i was kind of like wrestling with the facts was it you know was he kind of making a statement about kind of you know, women's lib or was it just the fact that they had this kind of slightly kind of carefree attitude to women and i think it's probably the latter if i'm being brutally I honest think so. I, I i would say chabral was he was not enlightened to feminist ideals at all he was just a a guy and, and i think you know uh for a leading man of Briali. Uh, you know, that was just kind of considered a cool thing to do. You know, there's a there's a girl, she's good to go. Let's get it, you know. Yeah, and I mean, Marie is, she, she's probably my favorite character in the whole film, actually. Because I, I do love how, yeah, this is this, I, I kind of like it in an ironic sense in the fact that she's just such a plot device, really. Yeah. Kind of, and, and she has this kind of wonderful look about her. Oh, she's beautiful. Uh, her her mannerisms, yeah. That that's she's an excellent performer, and and I think she went on to do several other films as Chabral, and definitely makes me want to kind of follow her career a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, because as soon as we see it, she just literally just eyes on him, isn't it? There's no sort mm-hmm. of like, it's just, and I mean, you can see it, it, little kind of things. All she's doing in the performance, she just she just occasionally looks up at him, and gives him these lovey dovey eyes throughout the yeah. entire film. But I mean, she's also as well. I mean, Marie. I, I, she kind of becomes not just kind of a throwaway character because something happens to her during the course of this film, which I haven't seen it for a while. And seeing it again, I found profoundly shocking, um, which is when we kind of like the, 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 the man who's been raising her, who finds out that he, she isn't actually his own. But they live together. He's he's sort of a father figure. Yes. He's been regarded as her father, but the town gossips pretty much know you know, her mom was fooling with some other dude at the time, and her mom is not part of the plot at all. She's presumably dead or gone or whatever. But uh, she's been living with this old man, this wretched old drunk. He's actually Serge's drinking partner. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, as soon as he finds out and gets um, confirmation that he definitely isn't her, his biological daughter, the first thing that is rape her. Yeah. 
and, and it was a way of punishing Francois, this meddler who's coming in. And so, was it Glamode is his name? Yeah. He's, uh, he's kind of taken out his resentment against the big city types, maybe dealing with his own resentment and frustration in this little backwater of a village. And now he's going to punish, uh, pr- punish Francois by raping this woman he's regarded as his daughter, maybe harbored some doubts himself. I mean, it's just it's it's a monstrous act. It's it's totally evil. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, Serge even says it himself, right? Like, yeah, we should pity this guy because he's been, you know, he's been wrestling with this for for years. Right. And it's just totally offhand comment. And seeing it again, and I felt really uncomfortable watching it. I say, like, wow, you know, I can't recall anything I've seen in you know perhaps even Old Boy or something like that where we kind of go down almost a similar type of you know debauchery really and. I was sort of thinking, and I began to like Google, like, you know, like American films that were coming out of time, and how kind of plat and yet how safe everything was. Oh yeah, this was this was very raw. This is very provocative filmmaking. I mean, I think probably the closest parallel would be Louis Malle's *The Lovers*, which came out right around the same time in 1958, uh, a little bit afterwards, or perhaps. But that was, I think, the first uh, depiction of a female experiencing orgasm, and of course, it's just signified by a hand clutching a bed sheet there's no there's no nothing you know real explicit but it's like wow the woman's actually experiencing pleasure from having sex and that's actually on screen that was that was pretty bold as well and 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 very shocking just to have that brief moment depicted well this this kind of gets into some very sinister territory and then serge himself says ah that's just normal that's just how things are around here so it's not like this is a provocative outrage. This is just, eh, this is this life out in the French countryside. Deal with it. Yeah, there's this kind of ever-present kind of sexuality in the air that you know, yeah. people, everyone's kind of sleeping. And it's kind of, it's all there out in the open from the often Like, say, kind of like Francois turns up and he's just like, instantly starts sleeping with Marie. And I think, you know, obviously how Serge has, has and, you know, had an affair of her and kind of, you know, makes it kind of quite explicit past that, right? Yeah. as the film goes on but it, it's just there on screen and it's kind of quite it, it, again it was you know when i said talk about kind of seeing films where you know, they're so safe like captain america it's a very safe film there's very safe things and going right. into this I, I was kind of just amazed at how you know it, it kind of knocks me sideways a little bit kind of going into it because i thought even by even if this film was to come out today i think we'd still kind of react to it with kind of a degree of kind of like wow, this is a little bit different, and it, you know, I know yeah. it's kind of part of what the French New Wave is all about. But it's kind of an introduction to this movement. I think it's, it really kind of sets the stall out. Well, yeah, and then I think you can also get into how religion plays into this as well, because you know, again, the the, the conventional religious morality is would be, oh, this is unacceptable. These people are completely immoral, and then we need to do something about it. But there's you know scenes where Francois is, and apparently it seems like uh, Francois studies have been somewhat in the field of theology whether he's been a seminarian or or more of a philosopher or whatever but you know he's he's still engaged with the church and when he actually discusses with the priest some of the things that he's observing you know the priest is about as jaded and as cynical <laughs> as anybody else in the town i mean he's he's doing his job he's he's you know manning the altar so to speak and doing the ceremonies but the only people who actually bother to come are just a little cluster of dowdy old women you know everybody else is pretty much said ah forget it you know whatever and so francois who's looking perhaps for some some support or some moral leadership from from uh the priest uh gets none of that and the priest continues to kind of say look son you're over your head you know i've tried for years and 
these people are unreachable and it's like a, a profoundly cynical uh portrayal and and uh of course you know uh, Bresson had done some of the same covered similar territory in uh, uh Diary of a Country Priest and Melville's Leon Morin Pret uh, the, the, you know he did another and that but again that was priest back in the 40s you know uh, even the Melville film was was kind of set earlier in history this is very much a uh, of the moment and and actually kind of represents Chabral's own break with Catholicism uh, at this basically right at this time is when he basically said I'm done with religion uh, but that's just a whole nother element of the of the, the, the debauchery or the the, the uh, spiritual and emotional uh, poverty of, of this village and so I I can imagine some of the locals watching this movie after the thrill of the camera crews had subsided and I was like wow <laughs> they're, they're kind of smacking us right between the eyes there yeah it's interesting I mean I don't, have you seen the film Calvary that came out this year I have not no with Brendan Gleeson well, it's a brilliant film I can really recommend watching it because it, again it reminded me of that of this kind of like Calvary's about this kind of small Irish village where there's a, there's a real sense that the whole village is just lost and it's not that perhaps people even need religion to get them back on the straight and narrow. They just need something to get them, you know, to get their lives back yeah. going again. And this is what I felt when I was watching watching the film. Was it was just it was so hopeless and bleak. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, the only the only real answer is get drunk and have sex. Yeah, it's, and <laughs> it's basically might as well return to the place of a big old trailer park or something. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I was writing my notes. It's kind of like. It's not kind of. It's almost like this kind of teetering on the edge of apocalypse kind of thing, where it's like you know, no one can be bothered to go over the what the one last hurdle to get there. But yeah. you know, you think like, you know, virtually all kind of almost kind of incest, you know, abusive men, drunk. I mean, there's just that bit where Serge is he's passed out drunk in the towns in the village square, and there's those kids playing football. Yeah. And he just gets up and runs after them, and it's like it's just every it, it's it's just so depressing to see it. And I, yeah, it is. It's, he's like the big bully of the of the group, you know, and and has completely lost his sense of I'm the adult here. These are the children. I should be at a different stage in life, and yet here I am. You know, they're teasing me and they're taunting, and and I'm just falling right into it. It's it's very pathetic, actually. You know, well, I mean, there's a little bit as well. He's watching the kids leave school. Yeah, and he's just looking down at them. And he's like, some of them have to walk three miles home. Yeah. And you sort of sat there thinking, and yeah, I mean, three miles doesn't sound very far, but you think like you're a kid and having to walk three miles home. And you just know that it's this kind of ever repeating cycle of kind of, you, you probably grow up with a few ideas and then they just kind of slowly evaporate over time until you end up either in an Yvonne or a Marie or a Serge. And you just kind of like, you sort of go through life kind of coasting until you just kind of never leave this village. I mean, I grew up in a small village and I would not say it's as bad as this. Good God, no. I had the most middle-class upbringing you could possibly wish for. But when I went home from university, I was consciously aware of the fact if I didn't leave, I was going to live and die within a 10-mile radius of my house that I grew up in. And when I go home, occasionally I meet people who I went to school with, you know, I've known all my life. And I'm not saying obviously moving to a city kind of you're kind of constantly doing all these things, but and I'm not patronizing their life at all. I'm, I'm not implying that it's a bad thing, but it's just they just sort of sit there kind of talking about wanting to get out a lot. And they, when you say, I mean, I live in Manchester, it's a big city, and they are, they're asking, like, well, what's Manchester like? Is it kind of, can you do this? Can you do that? And I mean, country life can be quite constrictive. And I yeah. think this film takes it to another level of constriction. 
Oh, and I think your point about the post-war era and the you know the lack of opportunity and the fact that you know France had still not really found its way uh, certainly had fallen from its past glories and was going to have to cope with a new level of you know economic uh, you know not inferiority but they're kind of in the second tier of world powers even if they have the ceremonial place at the UN or you know the the history that they can take pride in. But uh, there was still a lot of rebuilding going on, and and I would I would have to think that nowadays this this same real estate is very valuable, and I'm sure it's very affluent. The 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 the, the right people live there and they have very comfortable lives. And I mean, you think of films like Summer Hours, you know, that were filmed probably I don't know if it's in the same region, but you know, definitely much more prosperous way of life. Well, you know, this village was still in the process of getting itself out of these doldrums and and and. I, I, again, I can see from Chabral's point of view, you know, this story that he had conceived as his, uh, you know, one of his first, you know, feature films was was a good uh, choice because you know he could he could film it on a low budget and and bring you know bring a unique point of view, uh, but at, at the same time kind of exercise some of his own demons. I mean, I. Yeah, you know, there are some nice uh, kind of biographical features on the Criterion disc. I'm not sure if they're the same as on the Masters of Cinema that that takes Chabral back to the same town. Both one of them was filmed about ten years after this film came out, and one was filmed in the early 2000s when he was pretty much toward the end of his life and his his career, obviously. And so uh, they actually go around some of the same buildings and and especially the the later one that was filmed in like 2003 i think uh it's really cool because they bring a lot of the the, the surviving cast members both the professional actors and the non-professionals and and it's it's quite moving uh just to kind of see this this uh process come full circle you know and so you know i, I think chabral is basically saying his piece about life out in the country and then he's gonna he's gonna involve himself and and make his movies more about the bourgeoisie and, and urban life, uh, but this is kind of a clearing of, of of the air as far as his past is concerned. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all. It's a very. I mean, it's, it's a personal. It's as personal a film as you can get. Oh and yeah. I think this. I mean, this is something which you. Know, I, I know, kind of, you know, the new wave directors. They one of their kind of big things was this kind of they, they were running against was the presentation of reality, and I'm not for. His, I don't. I think reality is such a subjective word when it comes to cinema. Right. Yeah, you make so as, as soon as you start rolling a camera, that reality's gone for me. There's so many sort of <laughs> artificial kind of you know constraints that you put on on a scene that you know, to say something's reality, I, I think it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a stretch. But you get the, the yeah, I, I got I got the impression whilst watching it, this is very personal, and I think once you kind of those new wave directors, they were all about the director putting their you know personal touch to films. It was obviously the birth of kind of the auteur theory. And yeah. it's there with this. You can't make a more personal film, I don't think. Well, it's like young writers writing their first novel. It's kind of semi-autobiographical. And even like Truffaut, you know, The 400 Blows, a lot of the anecdotes were things that happened to him as a kid growing up in the streets of Paris. And yeah. Godard was a Parisian. And so their first films were really based on their home turf just as much as Chabral's. Chabral just happens to be the Cahiers writer, critic guy, who had a little bit more of a rural upbringing than a than a completely citified one so uh, i think it's perfectly uh, sensible that this this film kind of comes from that background even though he never really went back at, at least not not to this level uh, in his in his future career well he also had the benefit of kind of uh, funding his wife had inherited yeah, some money sort of, yeah. and that and that kind of got him started so he kind of got a little bit of a jump start um 
and that's why you know he's you know considered the first out of the gate as far as the new wave is concerned even though you might watch this movie and it feels a lot more conventional you don't have the kind of you know shifty jump cut editing you don't have the same kind of um as as much as i i think gerard blaine and and uh jean-claude Briali turn in very good performances they don't have nearly the kind of charisma that jean-pierre leod has in 400 blows or or uh Belmondo and, and Breathless, you know, to kind of have those iconic new wave leading men. Um, you know, they both went on to have very good careers. Um, and, and I think, again, there's nothing really lacking in their performance. They just don't quite jump out at you the way those other two do in Breathless and 400 Blows. Yeah, I mean, I think when people talk about the French new wave, the, the starting point for so many is the 400 Blows and Breathless. Yeah. And they're, and they're such, I mean, like I say, I mean, they're, they're, so, they're, they're very different films to this. I mean, I'm not, a, I've, I am not a massive Godard fan. I have to be brutally honest with you. I love Breathless, but the rest of it kind of leaves me a bit. I, I find it a bit frustrating watching his films. I'm not quite sure how I'm meant to take them, and I'm not sure if he's trying to annoy me or I'm just getting annoyed by them. I, it's a very strange. I, I think perhaps one day it might click for me, and I suddenly I can suddenly see it and you know get into it. And I, I, I for the moment, for the time being, I'm not. I, I can watch Breathless, and that, you know, I, I do. <laughs> I, I do love that film. You know, I, I love everything about it, but. The rest of it, I just get... I mean, I once... On my other podcast, I once... I can't remember what film I was reviewing of his. And I, I, I swear to God, this is true. I paused the film and there was a kid about to speak. And I said, the next words out of that kid's mouth will be to call adults either communists or fascists. And I pressed play and I think he called the adults fascists or something like that. And I, yeah. was, like, I was like, how on earth did I know he was going to say <laughs> that? And it annoyed me in a way. Because I, I was like, why do I know that? What you? Know, and is it because... I'm being is it because it's so obvious he's going to say something like that or is it because I'm just I think this guy's quite cliched in a way in what he's doing I don't know and it, it, it just annoyed the whole thing just annoyed me and I, just, I can't take any more <laughs> of this so I'm going to kind of go with thing but going back to I mean going back to this film it does feel like it's a lot more hinged as opposed to how unhinged we get later on with some of the French new wave I think yeah. that was one of the reasons it, it's quite it's not a film which I don't think is um it's not unaccessible. It's all there. It oh yeah. Su- it obviously, it's got subtext to it, but it, it, it's 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 certainly you, you can. It's, it's easy watching, isn't it? It's not. It's not that hard to kind of kind of. It's not impenetrable. Oh no, no. There's nothing that's off-putting about it. I mean, there are some parts that you say, well, they could have trimmed it down a little bit. I mean, the middle section is a little bit on the slow side, and you kind of wonder, you know, how necessary is this to your character development? But but I, I overall, I found it a very uh, very rewarding experience just kind of getting into this world and and to me like sort of like i said at the beginning just rounding out my understanding of the new wave that it's not all just about you know gimmicks like jump cuts or or homages to bogart or or uh you know the rascally you know little antoine donnell it, there it, it's it's you know i i like the the fuller picture of these uh directors you know as as young men coming into the world dealing with their own personal history, putting some of that on film, uh, throwing a critical reflection of French society back at their audience, both domestically and internationally, uh, you know, and, and, and as a sort of an, a statement of rebellion against the, uh, the, the cinema of quality, that kind of tradition of kind of more formal and somewhat more fastidious style of French filmmaking, which, you know, still had its, it has its charms. I think, you know, we don't have to necessarily buy into the, the feuds and the rivalries uh, of the new wave themselves. I mean, they, for them, it was a lot more personal. And so 
you were either in or you were out. You know, I don't, I don't really care about their little clicks. You know, I, I will enjoy a good film on its own terms, whether they, uh, you know, won the Kaye's approval or not. Uh, but yeah, that, that's it, to me, you know, Chabral uh, has drawn me into want to discover more of his work and and in the, some of the commentaries and you know films named in in the uh, supplemental features. I feel like I've got a bit of a pathway. You know, I think what made forty films over the course of his life. I'm certainly not going to seek them all out, but there's a few. There's a few highlights that I think are worth uh, worth checking out. And the late '60s, uh, Less Ceremony in 1995, I think, and and and, and several others along the way. But I'll, I have yet to discover. I'm sorry, I have nothing more to say about that part of his career. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing for me, I mean, just watching this film was it was how I related to these characters and how. I mean, over the course of an hour and a half, how intrigued I was by them, and especially Francois. I think mm-hmm. he was. I mean, I didn't. I didn't expect. He just seeing a character who, like I said, I had this kind of preconception that he was going to come in and sort this town out, and he was going to dish out the advice. But he's so wrong in every way, and it was interesting to see <laughs> a, a filmmaker who isn't afraid to have a character. It's like an unreliable narrator. Yeah, you know, it, it was. It, it was. It was interesting to me to have a filmmaker who was quite happy to have extremely flawed characters at the centre of his film. I mean, yeah. Yeah, if you think about it, the start for as well as telling Serge to get rid of Yvonne, like she's some sort of, you know, disposable thing. I'll just get rid of her. I know she's pregnant, but... Yeah, that's his own chauvinism, his own kind of, uh, you know, uh, hostility toward women coming through. I mean, I think fundamentally he is hostile towards Marie. I mean, he's, he'll charm her to, to get in her pants or into her dress, so to speak, but he doesn't really respect her as a person. And I don't think he sees Yvonne as anybody respectable. She's just another ball and chain. Oh, she's going to sadly it down with a kid. You know, it's like, you don't need that man. Come on, you can do better. Leave her in the ditch and, and, uh, you know, come back to Paris with me or whatever. I think that would be kind of his, his, his take on it. Uh, at, at least at a certain point along the way, but then he starts to question some of his own assumptions, especially after you know Marie gets raped and he maybe feels a sense of of responsibility. He doesn't, you know, maybe he didn't care about her emotionally, but he certainly didn't like that happening to her, and he he does his best to avenge the uh, violation that uh, that Glamour, uh imposed upon her. But he's he's now he really is an over his head. He doesn't really know where to go with this next. Uh, until the, the the kind of culmination of the film where he rescues Serge, he kind of pulls him out of the uh, you know out of the hen house and gets him back where he needs to be. Yeah, so that, that that scene, I mean, it's towards the end of the film where he, I mean, again, it just reinforces the kind of the horribleness of this village where she's out collecting wood to burn in the in its snow. You know, yeah, it's, it's yeah, there's two feet of snow and it's it's freezing. And she's heavily pregnant and he's walking around with her and. It was just this kind of. I thought it was a really touching moment where it, I was kind of like, again, I was a little, as I said, I was, I was a bit conflicted by how women were in this, but like how noble Yvonne was. Yeah. And in a way, I mean, she's got every reason. To, you know, they they can kind of they don't kind of. It doesn't ratchet up the melodrama on her. She's just a decent woman who loves him, who just wants you know things to work out right, and they're out there collecting wood and. Because, I mean, Serge beats him really badly as well, doesn't he? That's the only oh, thing. Yeah. Really, I mean, he absolutely gives him a proper pasting when he kind of dares to suggest that Serge and Marie having sex won't be such a good idea. I mean, he gives him a proper kick in. Right. And then and then Marie gets right with Serge. Like, she sees her, you know, yesterday's lover 
beaten to a pulp on the ground. It's like, okay, I'll get with you, Serge. I mean, just again, it's it's a pretty horrible bit of characterization. Perhaps Chabral knew women like that, uh, and also, you know, just incidentally, Briali was actually badly hurt in that in that staged fight uh, he oh, really? broke, he, yeah that. yeah the commentary track indicates that he actually broke two vertebrae <laughs> right. uh, he because well, chabral was saying you know you're not hitting him it doesn't look like a, you're really hitting him and so uh you know he was basically uh kind of directing uh gerard blaine to to be more convincing in in striking the blows and he just jostled him around so hard that uh, Briali later had to have back surgery <laughs> to repair two broken vertebrae, or else he would have faced a risk of paralysis. So, <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, the, the best, the best. I mean, just a quick di- diverge on that one. The best on-screen kicking I've ever seen is Keith Sutherland in the tw- in the second season of Twenty Four. Watch the oh, yeah. making. Watch the making of that film. Okay. He gets absolutely battered by a stuntman, <laughs> and and they can't get the camera in, as, as and he just says, "All right, just let him beat me up, basically." And he is <laughs> he is a bloody wreck at the end of it, and it's like I, I kind of doffed my hat to him because I thought, you know, he's got a bleeding nose, and the insurance people were pretty nervously hanging yeah. around him, but I didn't realise he took that much of a kicking. I mean, well, that's kind of taking things to a new level, really. And 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 no surprise here. There was no insurance coverage oh, God, for uh, for Lebo Serge. So this was a this was bare bones production, of course. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it, again, it's it's that when you're making films on your wife inheritance, I suppose. Um, you <laughs> yeah. always have to cut corners. I closed a road in Manchester when I made a short film once, and um, yeah, I didn't have insurance or permission by the police. You have to put two people in visas and just pretend that you do. So I can yep. understand why these corners uh, these corners get cut in this type of filmmaking. But yeah, I mean. The, the, the thing about it is you, you kind of feel like you get kind of dumped into this world and it's a very kind of new wave film because it doesn't offer a kind of a neatly tied up solution, does it? To oh, all no, these problems. no. You don't really know what happens at the end. Does does Francois die or does he just sort of break down with a tear streaming down his cheek saying, I believe he kind of slumps to the floor. Um, and then Serge kind of has his moment of awakening uh, when he realizes his his boy has been born. He's He's crying like a normal baby so you know assuming that he's well at least he's not dead he's not stillborn like the first one was and he sounds healthy so now all of a sudden maybe he's got something to live for and he has this kind of kind of repulsive slash hysterical laughter as he's kind of sobering up i mean again 15 minutes ago he was dead drunk asleep in a hayloft now he's been dragged through the snow i mean literally dragged by one arm face in the snow just you know gradually coming to his senses now all of a sudden he realizes i really am a father i really do have a child maybe maybe and we have no idea this is going to be the 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 tipping point for him to say i, I got to get my shit together you know <laughs> yeah, and that's one of the things i like about it because i don't think we haven't seen this massive change from he, he doesn't you know symbolically throw the bottle into the Right. does he in or ra- embrace his wife and newborn baby yeah. none of that right he just turns to the camera and kind of scream laugh sort of contorts his face and it, boom thanks very much thanks for watching yeah. You're off and now. it goes into this kind of faded out or kind of blurred uh you know the focus is drawn away and, and so it's almost like his face almost looks like a skull at one point so it's like and that's the end Ta-da. Yeah. yeah it's like thanks yeah like cheers thanks for watching goodbye and it's like when i was watching it, i was like ah like, oh. and in a way i mean it's it's that kind of um it be careful what you wish for in cinema yeah what happens when after the doors shut in the end of blade runner well yeah. unfortunately we're going to find out it looks like and i'm just like, and i'm just like oh god please don't do it you know and sometimes yeah. it's 
it's those types of films that stay with you for a bit longer because you can kind of when I went for my run this morning, I was thinking about this film and I was thinking, well, I wonder what really happened to those kind of people, you know? Yeah. What happened? Uh, yeah. What happened a month after that? Did he get bored of being a father? Yeah. Is he really going to kick the bottle that easily? Probably not. I mean, he's definitely got a a totally chronic alcohol problem. I mean, he's guzzling probably you know, two or three bottles a day, if not more. And uh, that doesn't just turn around overnight, you know, because there's a baby in the house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the one person who goes out on the lash with all the time is Yvonne's dad, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you see what your know, fatherhood did to him. You know, he's just like you know, he's, he's he's just he's just a junior. Well, he's an older version of such. And it, yeah, it was it was kind of one of these ones where it's just being dumped like that in the film. We're so used to having such rounded resolutions and kind of like solutions to problems being very easy in film. And in this film, they're not at all. It, it's yeah. this kind of it, it's it's so ambiguous, and you kind of dumped. and this film could have easily have started with Francois coming back the day after this kid had been born. You could have made, you, know, you could have made an, a, you know, another type of film like that, and it, it's you know, the end of the Four Hundred Blows, isn't it? Where the camera suddenly pans in, and I, God, I cringe now when I see that in every yeah. film. It's like, but when you see it for the, you know, again, kind of fresh as it were, there's that kind of the camera goes in on those eyes, and obviously we did get many sequels in the Four Hundred Blows. Yeah. it's an entire series, but at the time I'm pretty certain they didn't really have, I didn't know that was going to happen, and you're suddenly like, wow, where are we going to go now? And it's an exciting. I think it's an exciting way of making a film, especially ending a film, which is often so hard. Yeah, yeah. There's there's no real overt te- attempt to, to teach a lesson. He's he's stirring things up. But like we've already said, he's he's kind of creating a, a measure of discomfort, um, even while he's he's making a film that I think uh, has a lot of aesthetic merit. Um, probably the one thing about the film that I've seen most roundly criticized is the soundtrack music which is a little bit along the heavy-handed you know when uh when serge first walks on the screen there's a yeah and 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 you know so that's probably the one aspect of sound design if you will that hadn't quite been thought through or or they just hired somebody to do the usual thing because you know, I don't, I don't, I haven't read Chabral's writings, but maybe he's more about that mise en scene and the the framing rather than the 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 musical soundtrack work and all of that. So, but you know, this this is a transitional work, just like any other um, early progenitors of any new wave or or any other kind of uh, radical movement in in any kind of media. There's going to be a lot of uh, carryover. The, the the distinctions, the breaks between the past and the, the present and the future are not going to be quite as clearly demarcated but uh, you still see a lot of things especially if you go back to the films of 1957 1958 uh, yeah this this really did stand out whether you're talking about hollywood you're talking about you know england japan whatever you know nation i mean there there was something very distinctive going on here and uh yeah i think we're, we're all the better off and and uh this has been a, a fun film to dig into yeah, it kind of like I put it in the same category. It seems like you know, kind of um, in my Berman's summer with Monica and mm-hmm. films like that. It reminded me of that kind of that 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 kind of storytelling and that kind of film where it just seems a little bit kind of like yeah, you know, like we said, you know, things are being shook up a little bit. But the one thing I, w- I wanted to talk about was the film's visual style mm-hmm. as well because it was interesting. I was watching a short documentary that I found on YouTube, and it was about editing in the fifties and. I am that sad that I will watch films about editing in the 50s. <laughs> yeah, I am that kind of like you know, cinema obsessed. And it was just showing how in those days there was 
this kind of way you did things, which was if you had someone come to a hotel, the car would pull up outside the hotel. You would watch them walk in. You would pan to the name of the hotel. You'd show them walking through the lobby, opening the door. You would match cut them, opening the door, going up the lift, match cut them, opening, coming into a room, blah, blah, blah. And it was just so like, and people were saying, what was the point? You know, it was just kind of, uh, it was just this kind of really kind of time wasting, really kind of showing the most banal things. And obviously it happens a lot more in breathless kind of jump cuts. But one of the things I was consciously aware of when I was watching this was how long some of the takes were and the lack of editing in the film. And it was, again, it was kind of a revelation to me where I was watching a scene, and especially there's a scene towards the end where they're at that dance just before um, the, the fight, where you see kind of Serge and Marie dancing and the camera just kind of pans back and forth between Francois sat there with Yvonne and um, Serge and Marie dancing. And it does it about two or three times. And I suddenly thought, well, hang on a minute, I haven't seen a cut for about two minutes. And it, it suddenly reminded me that how, you know, these were people who were, they were interested in the language of cinema as well. And I think there was a, there was a brilliant quote, really, which had said, like, Griffith was kind of, you know, the, the, gave birth to the, the, the close-up and this kind of thing. And Chabot gave birth to the pan. And I suddenly, I thought, and I suddenly became hmm. consciously aware of it when I was watching it. Yeah, there's there's some pretty cool shots, um, you know, some of those pans of, of across the landscape. And then in the next one, we're going to talk about uh, some really amazing, like, 360 shots in, okay. in Lake Cousin. And so he was, he was yeah, and, and Henri Descartes, the uh, cinematographer, I think, is definitely one of those, um, well, I don't say he's unsung. He's definitely revered by people who study it to that level. But he, he really did help a lot of these early New Wave directors, you know, cut their teeth uh, just by... You know the, the high contrast, the the, the natural lighting, uh, that that last sequence where he's using the flashlight uh, down the little snowy trails. I mean, those are just you know. As I was watching it, I mean, before I didn't read any reviews or anything, it's like, oh my god, this is a really stunningly beautiful and and well executed sequence, you know. And you know, sure enough, you read reviews and people are like really marveling at just how gorgeous some of these shots are. So this is this is a very uh, visually speaking, very accomplished film for a guy who never worked on a film crew. He'd never been an assistant director. He'd never, you know, he'd probably maybe hung around some sets, but he'd never had an actual job in the whole process of filmmaking. He'd been a writer, a critic, a, a, a movie viewer, but uh, basically, you know, came on and not as a, just as a scriptwriter or as the director, but also the producer. I mean, you know, in fact, he, he kind of takes himself down, you know, because, you know, uh, produced, directed, and written by uh, Claude Gabral, you know, that's his, that's his initial screen credit, the, that invoice. Talk about starting at the top, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, I think sometimes when you know, people make the best films and they don't know the rules, and I think that was the thing about the French New Wave was that they were kind of like said, to hell with the rules. We're just going to yeah. do what we want to do because it's, you know, because we can and because the, you know, just because Hollywood is so kind of, you know, shackled to this kind of way of filmmaking. And then they're, they're kind of like, well, we're going to do it our way. And if that way isn't how you would do it, well, tough. That's how we're going to do it. And it, it's all there on screen. And it, it's just refreshing to see, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think now we can move on to the second film, which is 1959's Les Cousins, which is kind of... Um, same actors, but kind of roles reverse slightly in which we have... Kind of um, the character called Charles, who kind of comes back to stay with his cousin in Paris, and Charles was played by oh God, Gerard Blaine. Yeah, who obviously was Serge in the film before, and we kind of have Paul, who was played by um, 
Jean-Claude Brady in the other film. And this is one where I think it was quite interesting because I, I can when we talk about films, I can I can recommend watching them back to back on the same night to get the maximum impact of them, which is what I did. And it was interesting because it's kind of you kind of Francois in the first film, you kind of see him come from from what I think we can assume is Paris, and you sort of think he must be coming from a better place. And this film very quickly, I think, sives down the idea that Paris is somewhere. It might have a degree of kind of superficial sophistication, but I think it's still presented as a pretty bad place. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that the the uh, you know this is kind of almost like a nightmare version of Paris. I mean, uh, the the, uh, the you know the character played by Briali is 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 quite quite oppressive, uh, quite presumptuous, uh, very arrogant, and and. You know, I think fascistic. You know, I mean, especially mm. when he's playing his Wagner and putting his little German helmet on and carrying his, uh, you know, his uh, candlesticks around and and presiding, really lording over this party that he's thrown in his uh, kind of dream bachelor pad. It's it's quite a quite a twisted vision of the sophisticated Parisian cultural scene that uh, yeah, that Chabral was a part of and perhaps in his own way was kind of giving equal time as far as criticism was concerned. I mean, you know, we talk about him being sort of the country boy who went off to the city and then came back to the country and maybe had a few uh, uh, words of comeuppance for his, you know, for his colleagues out, out in the rural areas. But at the same time, he brought some of that rural mentality into the city and said, you know, you all ain't, <laughs> uh, you know, you're, you're not the knee plus ultra of, of, culture and civilization either you've got your own blind spots and your own depravities and i'm going to spend a little time exploring and exposing some of that in this film yeah because i mean paul and charles i mean they're both kind of obviously they're cousins and they're kind of they're they're both um they're working for i think it's a law degree isn't it i think they're going yeah yeah they're both law students right and so uh in the in the previous film we had that one is a theology student one's an architecture student now they're both in the same subject and and it seems like uh so, so Charles is the, is the one who's coming in from the country, and he's just there to study up and take his exams. Like, I don't know if he's been doing remote studies of some sort, but it, again, it's a bit of a pretext, kind of a convenient plot device of having the, you know, the country-city uh, clash of ideals. Because once once Charles settles in, he doesn't really feel like a country boy so much. He's just he's just not as experienced in the big city ways. But he's got his own hangups as well. So sort of like what you said earlier, Tom. These are both very flawed characters. There's not a noble ring of authenticity or truth to either of them. They're they're both pretty messed up guys. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was actually. I mean, I was surprised. I I actually thought this was quite a nasty film. Oh and, yeah, absolutely. It's it's wicked. <laughs> I mean, and it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like Lars von Trier, in a way. He makes nasty films about nasty people. I mean, have you seen Melancholia? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, the, yeah, the it, end of the world with Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it, it's that. I mean, he reminded me of the key on a Keith Sutherland. But he reminded me like his characters remind me of the Kiefer Sutherland character in that. Who mm-hmm. there's a brilliant moment in that film, and it makes me laugh out loud every time. Is when Kirsten Dunst turns up at the house and Keith Sutherland starts moaning about having to pay the taxi driver, and she's clearly having like this kind of like really like awful episode, you know, she's a deeply troubled person, 
And he kind of like walks off mumbling about how she hasn't paid for the taxi. And it's just this horrible little moment that makes me laugh. And it, this film is kind of polluted with people like that because oh, I know yeah. in a, and I know in a way, Charles, you're meant to kind of like him, but I sort of hated him during this film. Well, he it? starts off, you know, kind of the innocent abroad, if you will. He's he's just a hardworking, diligent young student who needs a little peace and quiet while he studies for his exams. I mean, who can't get behind a character like that? You know, he's just he's just trying to get that next stage taken care of in his life, get his law degree, earn a respectable, you know, trade and 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 make his way in the world. Um, you know, we anybody can identify with that character. Uh, but as as the movie goes on, he becomes increasingly uh well, uh, dis, uh, unlikable, I guess. It, you know, it's just one way of putting it. He, he, you know, because he's just so closed off and so uptight, and you know, just kind of just so relentless in in his pursuit that he's kind of lost his humanity somewhere along the way. So, yeah, yeah, he becomes much more unsympathetic as the story goes along. Because it's it's, it's weird for me because I mean I I hated Paul. Oh yeah! Everything about him, I hated him, <laughs> and it's just like I mean, and it, it, it's brilliant because when we talked about kind of like you know, you're not afraid. He wasn't afraid to kind of make characters flawed. He's not. He's not afraid to make them completely just wretched. Horrible and not. I mean, obviously with Serge, but I think I hated Paul more than I well, hated Well, yeah, from, from from the debut. I mean, the first thing you see of Paul is that here's Charles coming in. He's escorted by this. Uh, uh, what's that character's name? He's he's the same guy who played the priest. Yeah, Clovis. Uh, Clovis, right? Uh, Clovis yeah. kind of greets him at the door, brings him in, and there's Paul with his little telescope. Who knows who he's been peeping in on? You know, he's probably been spying on the the cute blonde across the street in, in her fifth floor window or whatever but he turns that same telescope around on his on his uh young cousin there and it's just he's at the top of a stairway he snaps it shut it's just very condescending and it just only gets worse from there he's got this little funky kind of a i don't know kind of an asian jacket on his little goatee uh you know he he's definitely the master of ceremonies the lord of his little domain and the mc of the party when that all kicks in but yeah there's this smugness i mean uh the word wasn't exactly in vogue back then but he's kind of the epitome of a douchebag <laughs> yeah and i mean if you look at i mean if you look at his, his apartment as well there's weapons everywhere and i oh, know yeah, wep- yeah. i mean and weapons come into that and i was i mean i, I might as well jump to the end briefly but i was very conflicted um how i felt about the ending of this film oh, the, for a while yeah, let's let's save that discussion of the yeah, ending yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's very problematic yeah yeah, yeah. I, I i i even my morning run this morning which was longer than normal to kind of think about these films on a, on a lot i think that might have I, we talked in the break that i was just suffering from an extremely bad <laughs> bout of cramp during the during the last discussion yeah. which I, I will try and edit out but one of the reasons why i think I've, i might be suffering from that is because I, I i went on a particularly long run this morning to kind of think about these films in, mm. a, in a lot more detail and and, and i was thinking thinking about this character and i was like i know someone like this i was best man at your wedding and he's the he is the biggest douchebag ever and he, yeah i'm sorry if you're listening you know who you are and um yeah you kind of gave it away there didn't you <laughs> it, it can only be one of two so but um yeah i mean it's one of these people who kind of like coast through life he's kind of like the kind of the, the ringleader who always wins oh yeah that's, yeah, that's he, and that's exactly oh, what happens here with paul at the end yeah. but go ahead yeah yeah, I mean, but he's one of these types of people, and it amuses me in a way. Because when I was watching the film, I thought, oh, "God, this is this is that person," and he's <laughs> not so much of an arsehole, but not not far off. But it was it was kind of like it, it was funny watching it because I, I thought to myself, 
you know full well these are people. These are very these are people who Sharon knows. And Clovis, I cannot believe, isn't based on a real person. Uh, yeah. This must this must be someone who he knew. He's such because, an inhabited character. He's not he's not a major player as far as screen time, but he really drives so much of what happens in this movie. Kind yeah. of from behind the scenes, kind of this puppet master way, yeah. Yeah, and it's like what does he do? Is he like a pimp? Is he a kind of, you know, just a drug dealer? Um I don't know if he was kind of like I, I don't know if there's some sort of homosexual relationship going on with him and He's probably got all kinds of little sleazy side deals going on that keep a little str- trickle of cash coming in, and that's how he makes his way, you know? Yeah, and, and you're kind of watching it, and this guy, the way he, he is with women, and when we talked about the issue with women during both of these films, but this one especially, I, th- I think goes to new depths of misogyny. Oh, yeah. To be honest with you, to the point where, I'm, I, you know, I think we're both kind of bleeding heart liberals who get worried about things which probably a lot of people don't worry about. This was one of those things where I was watching it thinking, oh, God, this is just, this is uncomfortable almost. To the well, point. very early on, just as in establishing the characters of Paul and Clovis, there's this uh, there's this attractive young woman who comes yeah. to the door and it's basically, you know, she's pregnant, she's in trouble. And, uh, oh. you know, after a few words of dialogue, a few little insinuations, Paul just goes with his little secret stash, gives her a handful of cash. And it's like, okay, off to the... Uh, back alley abortion for you you know that's that's our solution and you know she's hemmed in she has no no way out and, and there is no way out i mean she's not going to marry any of these guys i mean that and that's one of the things it's like you know the the oppression of marriage and fidelity and home life in the country is its own sort of prison but in in this world in, in the parisian milieu uh <laughs> the idea of marriage and commitment and, and faithfulness to one spouse is just it's laughable. It's like these people are so beyond that level of, of being able to relate and commit and find satisfaction with each other that it's like, oh, please don't even bore me with your your old-fashioned notions, you know? Yeah, and it's such a sleazy moment, that scene, because you yeah. have to eat each of them on a, on a shoulder, and the camera just sort of pans across, oh, yeah. and like you say, he just goes across, gets this money, and it's like, go on. And then I think you see him, don't you, in a bar talking to someone who... I think I think the guys actually perform the abortion or someone who likes facilitated it or something like that, and it's just like ah, oh, you know, off you go and think, yeah. And, it, and a it, little money is, will handle this. We'll wrap yeah. this 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 uh, indiscretion up, and now we're done with it. Now it's the next thing. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like where does Paul? Where, where's his money come from as well? You, you know, you can you, you can fulfill the backstory. You know, probably rich mum and dad who kind of keep yeah. him in this kind of thing, give him a nice sports car. A son of the bourgeoisie, you know, he's definitely. Uh, got the silver spoon and the red carpet treatment and I mean, everything's just paved out for him and and he knows it and nobody can take that away from him and he's just going to exploit every advantage that comes his way that's again that's the douchebag <laughs> yeah and it's, i mean this this kind of phase in kind of french cultural culture for young people like i mean i was reading an article today about how kind of this was really the kind of the rise of kind of consumer kind of hedonistic lifestyle for young people. They weren't so much interested in politics and kind of right. more weight, more waiting. It was kind of like living for the moment and doing what you want. And this is kind of like the Frankenstein almost of that type of mentality mm-hmm. where you have these people who were just so vapid and superficial. Right. They, they dressed great. I mean, you know, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. he's always got a, an immaculate suit on. His hair is, you know, cut to the, you know, to the nines, uh, he's he's tasteful, he's witty, he's he's funny, he's intelligent. I mean, it's it's all going on. So it's not like he's adult. Uh, he's 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 quite sophisticated and, and quite uh, 
on top of his game for the game that he plays. But that's the question. Do you really like that game, or <laughs> would you like to steer as clear from it as possible? Yeah, and I mean, again, I think when we kind of talk about the fact that you know, Chabrol and all these people were kind of hanging out in these kind of film clubs and kind of intellectual gatherings, right. I can't believe that this isn't based on them. In the, in the first film, we had this kind of look at this village and we were sort of saying it's kind of holding up a mirror to French society. I think this is holding up a mirror to kind of um, contemporary society right. as well in France. And what is looking back isn't a particularly nice thing. No, every every art scene, every third thriving flourishing art scene needs to have its money and you know that's and that's the whole paradox of patronage and and uh, you know funding for whatever the project i mean you've got to find people uh, the dilettantes the the rich people who uh like to be around the creatives and and that's kind of what, where chabral and, and his his buddies were at you know they probably had to hang out with some real obnoxious assholes to uh to kind of further their own craft not that they were you know champions of the common folk like the maybe the italian neorealists were or or others uh you know they 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 still like to have their comforts they still like to have a, a bit of the party life but they recognize that there was some pretty you know creepy stuff going on within that scene that they themselves were even benefiting from so i'm sure there was a a mixture of of uh, both uh you know, privilege and guilt and, and maybe even just trying to expose and, and, and examine, you know, just what makes this scene tick. Because uh, even though these, these, these uh, students are, are in the law and there's not really, you know, the kind of uh, insider movie buff stuff that you've got going on with filmmakers like Godard or Truffaut, uh, I, yeah, I, I agree. I think they're all in the same orbit here. This is, this is a, a group of very privileged uh, affluent young people uh, kind of just exploring the possibilities of what money and and good looks and youthful vitality uh, bring to them. Yeah, and it is completely devoid. I mean, there, is, there doesn't seem to be kind of like any kind of political kind of subtext to this film. It just seems to just kind of show them leading this kind of life revolving around parties and women and kind of just getting up to whatever you want. Yeah. And, and it, it seems quite, well, I mean, it doesn't become consequence-free, but it does seem quite consequence-free. And even practicing the law, there's no there's no cause to it. It's just a way of making you know fast, yeah. easy money, and it's a respectable gig. Yeah, they're not saying like you, know, you don't hear kind of either of them say, "I want to get into law because I really want to make a difference in the world." Right. You get the impression it's like they're just doing law because that's something possibly their dads did, you know, or some. You, know, you don't. There's no kind of. They don't seem to be characters who have kind of desires notable desires that normal protagonists right. have just give me the sheepskin and let me open my practice and and get in on the firm and, and I'm, I'm i'm good to go right yeah i mean it's like you know, kind of like you know, in, in the first film we kind of have you know francois you think he's going to come into this village and you think he's going to try and change everything and kind of thing but even that you don't see the intent of this it just seems that these two guys uh i mean th there's a kind of whole thing going on with charles i think there's something um with his mother, isn't there? He seems to be writing at all the time, and he seems to be really eager to impress her, and that seems to be his main kind of goal, really, is right. to kind of fulfill his mother's kind of expectations yeah. of him. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's the country thread, is uh, he's kind of you know loyal to his mother. He's, mom, he's a mama's boy, if you want to call it that. You know, yeah. writing letters and thinking about doing the right thing. And again, that's that's initially at least a very sympathetic point of view it's like you know he's he's a he's a he's a good guy he's he's solid he's got good work habits and and he's even trying to kind of keep his nose clean from all the 
you know, shenanigans going on around him, you know? And so he, he comes to these parties and he sees the, the orgy breaking out, the drunken brawls, the, the loose women. And it's like, man, I guess that's how it is with these, uh, you know, city folks, but I'm going to just, I'm going to stick to my guns. And, and, uh, and then he kind of doesn't get seduced exactly, but he, he finds a woman who catches his fancy. And that kind of is where things start to come off the rails for him a little bit. Yeah, and it's, I think it's one of the... I, I'm not sure to, to what degree I find it a fault of the character and a fault of the film, because I was saying, like, he meets Florence, and we know that, I mean, she's just treated... She's just a bit of a slut, apparently, because she slept with Paul and all his friends and everyone around him and stuff like that. And right. He, yeah, he doesn't know this, and he kind of... Suddenly it was like he was in love with her. Yeah, he, he like, they, they, their eyes catch, and he's just, like, smitten all of a sudden. And it is. It, it's, it's like, well there are there are young men uh who maybe because they've never really had a lot of experience with women or they've just been a little sheltered a little bit naive they finally meet that woman and it's like oh she's interested in me and they're sold out it's like oh i i'm in love with her she's she's awesome she's beautiful she's you know she she likes me i feel good around her well this is the one you know and and um and florence sort of has a moment of thinking wow Maybe this guy's a little bit different than all these scumbags I've been philandering with, and and um, man, maybe maybe I could have a different type of a relationship with him than any other guy I've ever known. Yeah, because to me it was a point where I started really not liking him. Yeah, because I was like, it was sunny like, because at first I genuinely thought I'd missed something, and actually around the film a little bit to see if there's if I'd like. I, I I think I kind of like got up or something like that, and I said, "Oh God, have I missed something?" Have I missed, yeah, yeah, was there a happened? scene back there where he, yeah, yeah, it just makes said, more sense? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "Well, what, what God, you know, he's in love with her." Uh, hang on a minute, and I sort of thought, "No," and I started. To, it was it's just kind of a really weird change where he went from being. I, I was waiting for the character to be established, and I was trying to work out what his point was. Right. You know, what, what what was he here to do? What was the point in him? And then it suddenly realised, and it kind of comes back to this idea that this film is quite a cruel film because it, it began to really be the point where I think. It's it really starts to turn the screws on him and begin to torture him because this girl pays him a bit of attention. He's dead nice to her. He suddenly is in love with her out of nowhere, seemingly. And I mean, I, I just didn't buy it to be brutally honest with you in, in the context of the film. But he suddenly he, he, they suddenly well apparently being torn off, and then all of a sudden she comes around to the apartment mistakenly thinking he's going to be there, and just right. Paul and Clo- Clovis are there. And in the blink of an eye, those two managed to convince her that, in fact, she doesn't want anything to do with Charles. She just wants to start sleeping with Paul. And she just goes along with it. And again, I'm like thinking, come on, this is just, you know, women. I mean, it's just so nasty on the on the poor girl, you know, on the, on the character. It really is, yeah. And, and, and profoundly, you know, just like as if she has no will of her own other than the immediate pleasure of, of having sex with the next guy who will approach her you know and that's a little bit of the same issue that i had with the marie character in in le beau serge which is that you know once a woman has sort of crossed over that line from being the virgin to being the whore she's <laughs> completely uh you know in the service of her of her genitalia if you will that you know in other words, as long as there's a guy who's ready to come along and give her what she wants on that level everything else doesn't really count for that much nothing else really has the power to steer her decisions as far as who she relates with and so to me yeah i would say that's just i guess i'll i'll be whether it's charitable or not i guess i'll let the listener decide but to me that's just kind of chabral's um 
un, un, uh, unenlightened um, take on, on how women operate. And I guess I'm just yes. assuming that from a late 1950s point of view, it's just very chauvinistic and, and very presumptuous about the role of men and women in relationships. Yeah, and it, I mean, it, it's that kind of thing in society where if a man's promiscuous, it's just that's just a man being man. If a woman's promiscuous, she's a slut, right. and there's something wrong with her. And I, mean, I think you know that's kind of it, it, that's that's kind of pretty much. I don't think that's changed really over the years. I think there is that still kind of like we don't like the idea of women being sexually. Well, society doesn't anyway like the idea of the sexually promiscuous women. I mean, if you read a lot of the right wing press in Britain, they they vilify women who seem to have like in celebrity culture who seem to have like more than one child with different men. You know, it's seen as this kind of really sort of like you know, they're still kind of put on a kind of the stocks as it were and i think it, right. it's so apparent in this film that you're watching it and that she suddenly goes off and she suddenly sees the pool and then he comes back and he sort of says oh well i'm sorry buddy you know you snoozed and you lose and here we go and he's just like okay yeah and and so all of a sudden you know uh, charles is back to being the studious schoolboy again and because i think you, you raise a good point there tom you know charles i mean he comes in as a single-minded i'm here to study i'm here to pass my exams i got to work hard at it i'm maybe not as gifted of a student as uh, as my cousin paul is so i'm going to have to really buckle down and memorize and you know crack the books you know burn the midnight oil all those clichés then all of a sudden it's like his one objective is com- you know, not completely thrown off, but significantly thrown off because now he has this compelling love interest and he's, you know, skipping classes or, or at least, you know, thinking about putting academics on the back seat so that he can get with this girl out of seemingly nowhere. And then the minute that his, uh, you know, his rival has bested him and now she's with this cousin of his, he just kind of, you know, he's a little heartbroken, but he sort of just doubles down and blows her off. It's just, it's just very odd. It's just, you know, psychologically maybe a little bit less than convincing, even though I think, again, the film still is, is very powerful in its own way. But yeah, some of these characters, yeah, maybe at the time they rang more true than they do nowadays. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, I, I completely agree. I think I, I watched this film. I was giving it a lot of passes. I think, I mean, I, I'm a bit, I'm a big one. I like kind of not so much, kind of films to spell out what they're about but i like a little bit of logic in films sometimes and when i've noticed it increasingly in years when kind of characters do things or the narrative does something which doesn't seem logical i'm a bit like well why is that doing it and you, you can kind of say right away it's just you know it's, it's a it's a means to an end it's a way of producing the story but in, in this i was kind of like thinking well why is he okay with that why isn't his character a little bit more kind of upset about it and especially as it kind of leads to this kind of this kind of course of action, which I, we'll kind of get to in a bit, but right. you have you have this plot device in the film, which is this gun, which is there yeah. all the time. And it's, I mean, I know we are talking, one of the directors of the French New Wave really worshipped was Hitchcock. Right. And it's this kind of device where, having not seen, I mean, this is the first time I've actually seen it um, in preparation for this. I knew as soon as I saw that gun, that this film was going somewhere with that gun. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a very early scene where where uh, Paul, I think, is clicking the gun right over Charles' head while he's asleep. You know, of course, it's unloaded, but he's just kind of messing with him. And again, it's that kind of fascist, uh, domineering aspect to it. Which, yeah, again, why didn't Charles fight back? I mean, you know, 
Gerard Blaine, he's he's built. He seems like a tough enough guy. Even if if Paul's going to steal his girl, sock him in the jaw. You know, I mean, exactly. don't be so and, passive about it. You know. Yeah, this is what I mean. I, I wanted him to act more a bit a bit more Steve McQueen. You yeah, know what I mean, like just knock him out. You yeah, know? exactly. You don't know this guy. This, well, what's you know, you don't owe this guy anything. And this is why I think I've been. And I wasn't sure again whether it was kind of I was I was being asked not to like the character. I think I, I wasn't sure if this was kind of like character development in the fact that by doing this we're meant to be kind of a bit sort of like oh come on just act a bit man up a little bit and start exactly better. yeah charles is kind of becomes contemptible at that point he sort of turns himself into a doormat and allows himself to be abused by this this cousin of his uh which you know they're cousins it's not like this is a boss and his flunky they're they're peers you know and and uh they're roughly of the same age and and maybe a little bit of different background, but it's not like one is clearly inferior to the other, except that Charles allows himself to be put in this humiliating position without any real significant pushback. And so, on the one hand, you know, it does make him, you know, like I say, very, very unlikable. But on the other, it's just like, it feels like a little bit of a manipulative um, uh, scripting, if you will, as far as the character is is sort of created to behave in ways that that we struggle with. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I'm clutching at straws here. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, one of the, but the films I was kind of reminded of, and bearing in mind kind of the Hitchcock film, was Rope. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a very fascinating analogy. But you're right. I, I can see that. Because some... you have these kind of two guys just playing off each other. Yeah. And I, even I thought that like, the apartment almost looked like the apartment in Rope. Sure, sure. And you, and you have these kind of two young men who are kind of like just sort of teasing each other and playing with each other. And that's how I felt when I was watching this. And there was this sort of suspense building in the film because I thought he, there's no way that he's going to act like this the entire film. Right. Because it would just be too annoying almost. And I was beginning to kind of sense like, you know, where where are we kind of going with this really? And I think that's one of the things that I would say suffers from, from this little film is that I, I I feel it's quite aimless, a lot of it. And I'm not quite sure. That I, I'm, not, I'm not sure to what degree it's supposed to be. Or it's kind of just, in a way, it's kind of like weak storytelling. But I think it was about about an hour into it, like two thirds of the way into it, I was thinking this needs to start looking like it's going somewhere. Yeah. And I got the impression that I don't honestly believe they really thought about where it was going at. So I felt it was more kind of like a sense of here's like kind of like you know just scenes that are kind of cobbled together, and we'll kind of see where it kind of goes to naturally. I think I think yeah I think you're on this one. I think these party scenes were definitely quite quite evocative and, and very memorable and, and very striking you know the the first scene where it really just kind of completely goes off the rails with this italian uh count or whatever he is coming in and, yeah. and and i mean it's just like you know you've got all these beautiful women strolling in and they pretty much they know what they're in for and where this thing is headed um it's it's going to get pretty raucous pretty pretty ribald pretty soon um but uh let's just go along for the ride and it kind of remind me of other kind of party scenes like i think uh you know la dolce vita another recent yes, criterion definitely. release uh i think white nights with marcello mastriani had another big party scene in it and, and uh, it just uh, even breakfast at tiffany's you know and kind of the yes. early party scene it's like these are these are kind of great cinematic cutting loose episodes of the you know, late fifties, early sixties where it's all the hipsters sitting around 
putting records on, getting tipsy, floundering around with each other, and just kind of, you know, it's 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 a little vicarious thrill and perhaps a little bit of a, a capturing of the uh, zeitgeist at the moment. You know, just all the all the antics, all the all the craziness of these uh, young beautiful people. You know, just carousing and 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 having a night of it. You know, and and getting a little bit weird and bizarro too. <laughs> yeah, that's it. I mean, it is one of these things. I mean, like, yeah, um, I don't. It's kind of reflected last year. I mean, I don't know if you watched. Have you seen the film The Great Beauty yet? I have not. No, I've, 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 you're about the sixth person say I got to see this. So oh, it's, yeah. it's on my shelf. I just haven't gotten to yeah, it yet. Yeah. What, what watch it? Because apart from bursting into tears during one scene of it, it there was it was look. It's got it's it's essentially a film about crazy parties. In sure. A way. Right. And it's suddenly reminding me of all these kind of like like you're saying these kind of these crazy party scenes that kind of crop up in these types of films. And they always look like parties where I think I'd get the um with that after about an hour. I think I've got to get out of here. <laughs> it's kind of like amateur theatrics that are going on. Yeah. And like you said, I'm kind of watching it thinking, what are we doing here again? And I, I know because at the time it might have been quite new, but because I've seen it so many times before, I, just, I, think, I was like, are we, are we really having this scene again? And you know full well they're all going to go, let's go for a drive. And boom, just get in sports cars and go off like yeah. crazy down the road. And it was there, I was sort of thinking, right, film, we need to sort of, there needs to be something about this. And I mean, I, I guess we can kind of wait, kind of like move to, towards the kind of going up to kind of the, the film's climax. Yeah, that's fine. I don't think we have to drag this discussion way out. I mean, I think we've covered yeah, a lot yeah. of the salient points already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, w- when we got there and this gun came back into it, and then you have, you have kind of. I suppose Charles, he has what I, I suppose could be described as a breakdown of sorts, doesn't he, in the film, where suddenly he, he I suppose just before we get that to it, he completely flunks these exams. Yeah, well, well and, and preceded by Paul, you know, absolutely, yeah. you know, just breezing on through, just using his charisma. I mean, who knows what these exams actually measured? Was it a measure of your actual knowledge or was it just who you knew? Oh, daddy paid the tuition. We're going to make sure he gets his degree. I mean, none of that is really ever sussed exactly. out but you sort of get the sense that this guy's got the gilded path through life he doesn't really need to know his stuff he's got all the right connections he, and and he knows he doesn't have to he doesn't have to buckle down and study it's it's you know the fix is in he's he's going to get his degree and yada 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 but country boy less connected you know maybe he's paying on loan uh we don't need to give him the degree we can we can uh, make him be the the example of of why we don't just don't pass everybody who knows what the story is there but yeah and i mean it was like i mean i went to the point where i think i spun it that paul might have even probably paid someone to do it for him you know sure. you know he's done you know you know i mean it, it's the thing is it's kind of like he, he even says it to any paul he's like he's, he's so naturally gifted anyway that he's just gonna absolutely yeah he's he's a professional bullshitter so he could go ahead yeah. and, and also so you know, so what happened is that is that you know paul passed he breezed through charles flunked and now he's he's completely, you know, adrift. He has no direction. He he you know he's let his mother down. He can't even fathom going back to restart the whole exam process again. Uh, his heart's been broken in this first fling, this romantic crush that he's you know settled for and 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 has been kind of rejected. So you know he's he's pretty much suicidal. Um, not completely determined to die but he's willing to play a serious game of russian roulette yeah and this is the point because it's, it's kind of like i sort of thinking this anger that he has then he should have had eight about an hour and a half ago <laughs> you know yes. suddenly it all seems kind of like the film sort of like corrals itself into the position and obviously he kind of gets the gun 
And I was like, I, I would like it if he just he, he puts the one bullet in, and obviously he puts the he, he puts the gun to Paul's head when he's asleep, and it pulls the trigger, and it it doesn't go off. Right. Then he sets the gun down, just sort of leaves it there. Okay. Yeah. And I kind of liked that. So that, and I, I thought I can, I can, I can live with that as being kind of a very dramatic moment. Right, because and I here saying, he's he's exerting some of that pent up aggression towards his enemy. You know, it's his cousin, yes, but it is without a doubt his adversary. His, his oh, it's his nemesis, and he's yeah. Paul. Paul just whatever he wants, he doesn't get, and Paul just takes it off him easy as. And you know, you know, and we know from Paul, this you know, passing this down, it doesn't mean anything to him. He's just going to have carry on having these parties carrying on enjoying himself, having his flings, paying for abortions. And there's that kind of pretension, I think, about Charles where he's going to try and be a slightly better person perhaps right. and you know, he, because he wants this and it's, it means a lot more to him. And I was quite down with the fact that this kind of, it all comes to this moment of chance where he, he pulls the trigger and nothing happens. And I thought, right, okay. You know, as, as, as I was watching this for the first time, I'm like, one of these dudes has to die. <laughs> like, uh, you know, the, the dilemma had sort of ratcheted up to this point where it's like Charles has to go or Paul has to go. Part of it's because, you know, sort of where the film must be heading once those guns have been. Pl- it wasn't just that first gun shot. There was also the gun being drawn in the party when the, the, the Italian guy got it out and was, you know, you know, shooting empty cylinders at people. So, you know, the guns are just always sort of hovering there in the background. But yeah, it just felt like, okay, some kind of, you know, bitter, you know, killing needs to take place to, to kind of break the tension here. I didn't know which way it was going to go, but I guess we're about to give it away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I, I think, I think a rather large spoiler alert because I was quite happy for the film to end then. And then obviously, you know, Paul wakes up and they have this discussion and the gun gets waved around. And in the same playful fashion, he pulls the trigger, and lo and behold, he takes Charles out. Yeah. And for the sheer shock value, I have to admit, I did quite like it. Oh, for, yeah. Kind of, yeah. In a very superficial way, I thought, oh, that's quite a clever little thing. And then I went away, and I suddenly thought, no, that's actually really rubbish. It, it, and yeah. It, it, and it completely cast a kind of... A, it made me not like this film to a degree where I suddenly thought that it was one of those films. It's like a lot of horror films are about two thirds of the films are about kind of setting up these situations. And then the last bit is just kind of like, it just falls into yeah. kind of gen- generic. And you suddenly think, Oh, the good work that has been done kind of goes away. And you forget that that goes kind of early scares and the early kind of tension building. And you're suddenly a little bit deflated. Yeah. And with this, I was suddenly aware of the fact that I'd watched this film that hadn't, it doesn't really go that far anyway. It is very much a kind of a series of kind of situations that repeat themselves over and over again. And then it's kind of, it felt like it was a bit of a cheap ending in a way. Yeah. It's like, we got to wrap this mess up somehow. So let's just kind of, you know, do this, do that, pull the plug, goodbye, you know, and, and get them out there. I, I, I did, I, the, the ending is striking. It has a little bit of that smack in the forehead type of impact. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, the shot is fired. You know, Charles has this nice kind of staggering, blop to the floor death. And Paul just wanders around, never says a word, never tries to help. He's just no. mute silent the whole time. And that's it. And it's like, I mean, it it you know, it, it became so artificial and so theatrical at that point that it's like, you know, we're completely in the realm of head trip, intellectual, you know, yeah. uh, fantasy, not, not really 
anything based on how people would really react in a situation like that. I mean, I don't care how morally depraved or manipulative or cold or cynical you imagine Paul to be, but he's just shot his cousin completely yeah. by accident. He just stands there and, you know, wanders around philosophically while the music swells and the credits, you know, the fade to black and that's the end. It's like, come on, <laughs> you could have done a little bit better than that, you know? Yeah, and the death itself, and I don't know, one of the reasons why I think I found the death so abysmal was the fact that I've been watching Band of Brothers in the Pacific yeah. um, recently. And when people get shot, they you, you bang you down. Yeah, I mean, they react. I mean, they have at least a few seconds of life like, oh my God, you just shot me, you know? They're, they're, they're swearing, they're yelling, they're crying, they're praying, they're pleading, whatever it is. But they don't just stand there like statues and then elegantly tumble <laughs> to the floor <laughs> yeah and, he, and it's like i mean like you said i mean you, you thought there would at least be some recognition of the fact of what he's done there'd be like some kind of like, oh my god yeah and it's it, like i said it kind of goes into this kind of pseudo intellectual nonsense and it reminded <laughs> me of the things i hate about goddard films yeah because it's the kind of, it's the type of thing that would happen in one of his oh films. yeah well not only do they get shot but it's it's completely red you know watercolor paint or whatever it's just it's just it's ridiculous you know the, the the effects and the the cheapness of of killings in those films i i i probably like godard's films a little bit more than you but it's it's much more on an aesthetic level or just uh cheering on his audacity at the kind of thrusting these films in our face like that but in terms of actually caring about the characters <laughs> no <laughs> yeah, i mean I, I mean i was half expecting a kid to turn up and call him a fascist or a communist it was that type of thing to me and i was just like and i just sat there thinking oh come on and then and then it was like i mean I, I, it's why i feel a bit conflicted about this film because i was trying to think about in light of the ending and it, it was something about wait, under what circumstances would i watch it again and I, I was thinking, you know, perhaps if I was going to kind of do like a, a retrospective on the new wave or if I was just feeling like particularly mean, I might watch it again. But I just don't think it has a long uh, kind of a replayability. It did kind of sully the film for me a little bit. I think that ending, I, I, I was I was just disappointed, really, that it had kind of it gone in that direction, especially having watched it back to back as well. You know, with the view surge which i was so kind of i was so down with that film and i was so excited when i watched it and this did feel kind of like a little bit it, it just seemed to completely kind of detract from what had happened in the film yeah i think uh, lebo surge seems more like a, a a truly um kind of heartfelt lived out film this one here like Hosan, um i think it was the actually quite a bit more financially successful at the time of its original release and I, the buzz i read somewhere online is that you know for the you know initial eruption of the new wave um you know of course the 400 blows was the real blockbuster but when people are saying oh what other new wave films are there well this chabral guy has done two of them uh Le Beau Serge is kind of corny, but yeah, see Le Cousin. And so that's that was kind of the initial take. And Le Cousin, because it, because it was more urbane, more sophisticated, a little bit more sexy, you know, in a in a in a kind of fun, rambunctious way, if you will, if, if you consider those party scenes fun and rambunctious. Uh, you know, the Le Beau Serge is is tawdry and 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 kind of unseemly and and dirty. Uh, this is more, you know 
like you know risque, I guess, and 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 more elegant. You know, the the women are more beautiful and better dressed, and there's guns and there's champagne and there's you know all, all the all the big city thrills, you know, uh, and even even the lead characters, Briali and Gerard Blaine, are are dressed in nice suits and they're they're sharp looking. So all of those kind of surface charms are there. And so I could I could still see even today some people thinking Lake Hosanne is a little bit more, you know, compelling or a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, hip or what I don't know what whatever adjectives you want to throw on there, but Le Beau Serge I think is the one that came more from Chabrol's heart. Uh, Lake Hosanne, you know, <laughs> it's a little early in his career to say he was selling out, but I think he he might have been thinking a little bit more about what's going to kind of you know put some butts in the seats and kind of you know turn the crank for the the youngsters in the audience who want to see something a little bit you know a little bit more daring and provocative i think it's playing to the audience more yeah i think that's the kind of perhaps the way i, I mean yeah I, I think it kind of it, it knows its audience it knows who's going to watch it and yeah like i think that you know might be the reasons why it's a, a bit more popular but it, it's for me it, it's a bit of an odd it's just a, it's just a strange film where i kind of like I, I I didn't enjoy it that much. I kind of thought I, I should. I I thought I wanted to enjoy the scheming side of it a little bit more, and the kind of the. the, the I suppose I wanted to kind of be down with the nastiness a little bit more. But after a while, I was just sort of thinking, hmm, I'm not quite sure where this is going. And yeah, it, it's 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 certainly a, it's it, again, it's a very bold film. Let's not kind of you know beat around the bush. It's you don't really it's, it very seldom do filmmakers set out to have characters who you know there's not really much to kind of grasp to you know or kind of attach yourself emotionally to these of either of these people and it has that kind of i mean even the ending made me laugh a little the actual final shot of the film is the record coming off i mean i don't know if you noticed that but the needle was coming off the record and it just said finn at the end yeah right right and it was just kind of like I, again i sort of thought yeah this is this film isn't made for me in this decade it was made for people my age in the 50s or probably even a lot younger than that and yeah i guess the word is context isn't it that you have to use really yeah yeah and i think again if you look at it in the films of of the era you know 1959 uh it's a uh it's kind of a you know it's it's definitely a a trendsetter an icebreaker and uh and 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 a very you know to me i'll say a very worthy addition to the criterion collection slash masters of cinema because you know i you know chabral is is like he 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 became this uh journeyman type of director uh you know even even just his his uh his physical appearance and his personality didn't seem quite as as you know charismatic as godard you know the 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 fearless brazen intellectual provocateur and francois Truffaut, who's you know very very likable uh, very warm-hearted uh, exuberant guy and just in his persona uh Chabral's a little bit of a nerd and kind of a little yeah. bit of a you know just kind of a you know i don't know, just just didn't have that same kind of ability to woo the viewer as a personality so he had to take a different path in his cinematic career uh, I, I speaking for the criterion versions i was very pleased with the the supplements on le beau serge which really do give you a sense of the man himself looking back on you know 50 years in cinema uh le cosin only has a commentary track from and i i, I like the fact that criterion put two different common uh, two different commentators uh, on, on each of the films he didn't just didn't hear the same person's perspective 
twice, you know. Um, yeah. So, uh, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the Masters of Cinema editions there or just kind of wrap things yeah. up here. I mean, I, I've got both. I mean, um, the Criterion and the Masters of Cinema one. I mean, just to, just to kind of say, I've, I've, I've obviously, I think it's... I think they're great additions to both. And I, I mean, not to kind of say, because I, I think it's a film that's definitely worthy of being in these collections. I think that it's an excellent companion piece to both films. I think the fact that you can kind of, sort of the differences between the two and the similarities between the two make them worthwhile as companion films to have in the collection. Yeah. No, no doubt about it. I just personally have more slightly kind of like slight issues with Le Cousin, which perhaps you know, I, I didn't have with the first one. But yeah, I mean, uh, on the Criterion ones, um, both come with really excellent booklets on this. And there's um, hour-long documentaries on each one about kind of the origins of the French New Wave, which was really, really good. Um, there's some short films as well. And I don't think they have the commentaries. No, no. I, I, the, the commentaries are lacking on Masters of Cinema, but, but, but those other supplements on the Masters of Cinema definitely looked intriguing to me. I, I would like to see had like to have seen more of Chabral's short work, and I kind of wish Criterion had kind of, you know, ponied up whatever it took to get a little bit more of his, you know, later short works on there. Because, you know, like I said, I, th- I think to watch one of these films without watching the other almost doesn't make sense. They are so yes. so interlinked. I mean, they premiered in Paris about a month apart from each other, uh, and and just the the interactions of the of the cast members of both films that overlap from one to the other. And just just the role that they played. I mean, they both predated the four hundred blows, and that in alone says, yeah, these are these are real landmark films. And I'm glad that Criterion finally got around to getting him in the mix. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, like you said, it's interesting to see two you know the roles reversed, and you know, from an acting point of view, just seeing two people play such different people in you know well not so much different people but different characters like that, and you know. It's. I mean, I would like. I think they would have been perhaps better off being released as kind of like a double bill. I don't know. You know, like as opposed to individual releases. I think they're that entwined, and I think they're that important to see together. I don't know whether it might have been kind of worth having them kind of in one box set, as it were, as opposed to separate releases, just to kind of kind of reinforce the point of the similarities between the two and the importance of them. And from a film history point of view, like I said, people when they talk about the French New Wave, it begins with Breathless and the Four Hundred Blows, and Chabrol isn't. He's not up there in kind of terms of fame and stature as the other ones, and certainly, like I said, I mean, it's a, a great jumping-off point. It's a, I, I, I'm not quite sure how many, how easy it is to get hold of so many of his films. I, I haven't looked into it to be honest with you, but I certainly would like to and kind of check out some of those latest ones. But it surprises me that there's not more of him in the Criterion collection. To be brutally honest with you, he seems like the director who's kind of made for it. I, I would have to think that they've got to be scoping out some other editions, you know. Uh, for future release because he's definitely one of these major uh you know french uh, world cinema guys who who is underrepresented you know it wasn't until about a couple of years ago that these films even made their criterion debut uh and so yeah i think that's a that's a new direction of worth exploring uh even if they're you know just kind of hitchcockian thrillers uh from a french perspective <laughs> to me that sounds very criterion slash masters of cinema worthy i mean we'll definitely i mean the, all the all the melville films definitely fit in that mode and why not let's take a look at chabral's uh version of all that yeah I mean, you've got Henri clouseau as well i mean he's yeah. kind of a fixture isn't he i mean he's like kind of the french i mean he's often called the french hitchcock right, isn't he and, right. the, and we've recently had that yeah that jack demi box set as well come out on criterion i mean that whole kind of left bank um, cinema movement, you know, another kind of offshoot of the new wave, and it, it just seems it's kind of yeah, he seems someone who's made for the collection and master cinema, and I really, yeah, like I said, I really, really hope that they kind of do put more of these films out. So 
I think we can kind of like bring things to a closure now. So kind of final thoughts on both of these. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming we're both going to heartily recommend these, aren't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you can consider yourself a new wave aficionado if you want to stick with the Truffaut Godard, throw Eric Romer in there. Uh, Jacques Rivette's another director. In fact, he's even name-checked in Le Beaucerge, who's yet to make his Criterion debut, at least. Um, but I think, you yeah, know, before we pigeonhole the new wave as just a very select, you know, uh, couple of directors uh chabral needs to be you know put in context there these are films that i think you know they they stand out uh, i guess my take would be you've, you've got to have a certain taste for you know black and white and french cinema uh of the era it probably helps to know some of your late 50s films to recognize just how you know innovative or groundbreaking they were uh, because they're not going to jump out and grab you like i said you know the same way that the you know, breathless or the 400 blows are going to um uh, or some of the later you know 60s films where we got into the you know the, the the you know the pop art colors or some of the more experimental type of stuff these are still fairly conventional narratives as far as all that's concerned but um you know if you're into the history of cinema and the the way that old conventions were kind of shaken loose and new territory was opened up. Uh, these are these are a couple of landmarks definitely worthy of your attention. Yeah, I, mean, I completely agree with everything you said. I mean, it's like I mean, I would say to someone, go and watch um, Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde, and look at how that film was made, and then go and watch these films, and you'll see you know the origins of how those films are edited, and how those films are shot, and how they influenced cinema. And I think that's I mean, I'm, we can take, go back to the beginning of the episode where when you talk about these various film movements and how what they've done is echo, echoed through film, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's an evolutionary process cinema. And I think these films certainly kind of show how we got today and the things that we appreciate about cinema today. Certainly a lot of it is born from these. So, I mean, just a quick word on both the transfers, but I've got the Criterion DVDs of these. I don't have the Blu-rays. I've got the Blu-rays of the Master Cinema Ring. And these are really brilliant um, transfers as well, I noticed, um, especially... The view surge. Um, I had it projected up on the big screen, and it was a real. It was a, looked fantastic, and I think the Criterion ones as well. I noticed they got really good reviews on um, Blu-ray.com as well for the picture and sound quality. So definitely really good restorations that have been done there. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I think I would have to recommend picking them up on Blu-ray as opposed to DVD. But certainly, I think these films look and sound brilliant, particularly brilliant. So. David, thank you very much for coming on board today. Um, where can we find more of you on the internet? Uh, well, I guess just find me at criterioncast.com. I do the Eclipse Viewer podcast. I do reviews there. My blog, Criterion Reflections, is out there. And I also am active on Instagram, David L. Blakesley, and on Twitter at Criterion Refs and Eclipse Viewer. So, yeah, I can be found. <laughs> Um, okay, cool. You can find more Master Cinema Casters moccast.blogspot.com. You can find us on the Criterion Cast webpage as well. You can find more of me at 24framescast.blogspot.com and you can follow me on Twitter at 24framescast. I've got Google Plus and all that kind of stuff. You can find me. Find out where to find me on my on my blog. But David, many thanks for coming on board tonight. It's been a brilliant episode. Thank you very much, Tom. I really enjoyed it. I look forward to doing it again with you sometime. Brilliant stuff. And thank you all for listening and we'll be back with another episode soon. Goodbye. <laughs> Get down from that. Get off. Get off. So like my cat's trying to pull something off the thing. Get off. Sankeys, get off. They don't speak English, do they, cats? They're a nightmare. Hang on.
and then you have this sort of moment. I'm oh, sorry, David. My cat's just sorry. Oh, fine. Get down off that. <laughs> get down. You get on that again. Get out. That one does understand English, there you and he go. knows what he's being. God damn. Jumping up, it's like I've got all my records and CDs, and this thing, and he jumps up, and he rock, and it happened before, and he, oh, he, he made the whole thing down. Oh, yeah, man. and he, he jumps up, and he, oh god, dear, doesn't matter, right? Sorry, David, one sec, the cat's back at home. Okay. He's got, <laughs> what have I said? What have I just said? Get down. Uh. Do you know what, David? That fucking cat. Hang on, sorry. Right, that's it. You're going in there. You're going in timeout.